the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith along with Alex Terzic. Let me see if you can say it better than me. Alex Terzic. You're improving. You're improving. Thank you. Coming to you from a wintergreen resort, wintergreen Virginia up in the mountains. Alex is uh, hanging in here with a customized intern. We're studying tennis. Right now we're going to call Dave Anderson up. He's been a guest many times on our podcast. North Dakota boy. Ringing once. We're talking about parents tonight. Parents talk about pros. Pros talk about parents. Hello. David Anderson, good evening. Thanks for being a guest on episode 168 of the Great Base awesome. Tennis Podcast. 168. Yeah, thanks for having me again. No problem. Appreciate it. I've got a lot of feedback. People like listening to DA, Dave Anderson. I've got Alex with me. He's studying tennis, uh, teaching pro up in Toronto, Great White North. I thought we'd start with a uh, song uh, for mental toughness. Johnny Cash, why don't you listen, read a lyric? Uh, the first lyric you're going to read, Boy Named Sue? Yeah, I can go ahead. Go ahead, Alex. My daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Johnny Cash. Yeah, I think the listeners, uh, those of you who are trained juniors, you could print out the lyrics of that song. Uh, it'd be a great assignment for the players to read that. I agree. We talked a little about Lombardi. Johnny Cash, he's a, he's a classic, yeah. We talked a little about Lombardi. Yeah, I think it was Paul Hornig. Rather give the ball to a whiskey drinker than a milk drinker. It's the, uh, <laughs> those Aussies, you know, mother's milk, low to high, uh, swallow through. Uh, one other thing we want to do, uh, but before we have Alex read it, uh, I know we're going to get to tennis parents, um, with the intercollegiate tennis association, regional matches for qualify for indoors mm -hmm. work for tennis worldwide. We want to try to help tennis from one corner of the world to the next college tennis we'd like to see more americans play american college tennis so alex helped uh with his assignment we had some juniors um looking up where the players were from and what their utrs were what their utrs are um but going to go ahead alex well all the information was taken from zoo tennis and like steve said the qualifying for the regionals for the itas um did a little bit of research on the women's and the men's side. So I'll throw out some numbers um, from the women's side first. Um, out of all the players, so we had in total um, across singles and doubles, we had um, 78 players, 52 competed in the doubles, 26 in the singles. Some of those did repeat. There was a couple of players that played singles and doubles. But uh, the findings were as follows, uh, 36 of those players were actually from the US of A. So that gives us a percentage of just shy of 46% of uh, all female players were from the US. UTR scores uh, on the low side, some of them were in the 8.5, 8.6, and the numbers went as high as 11. So a, a, a bigger spread than expected, but still still pretty, pretty high level of play. Um, I did go a little bit further into the research and just took a look at some of the Eastern European players 
players from the countries like Russia, Romania, Belarus, Serbia, Greece, and there was 12 players. So out of the 76 players, sorry, out of the 78 players, 12 of them were from East Europe. Um, the rest of Europe, some of the more dominant countries were France, Spain, Denmark, and the Netherlands. There was only nine players on the women's side. So those were kind of the findings from the women. How about the men? Um, men had a little bit of a smaller draw. Um, let me go down here. So there was 48 players in the doubles, 24 in the singles. So when we summed that up, just uh, 72 players there. Um, a variety of countries. Um, there was you know, players from all, from sort of all over the world, USA had 21 of those players. So that gives us a number just shy of 30%. UTR scores, a bit higher, between 12 and 14. Um, East Europe, now, interesting thing with these, uh, with the men was that on the East European side, only nine players were from East Europe. Countries like Russia, Belarus, Serbia, uh, you know, uh, Odd numbers here and there, Slovenia, Montenegro. Um, but the rest of Europe, like some of the bigger nations like Germany, France, Spain, and Italy, they had 16 players. So that's actually 22% of the all overall players um, were from, from the rest of European countries. So USA still had 30%. The rest of Europe had 22%. And East Europe was uh, you know in the single digits. So 30% of the players yeah. on the men's side were American. That's right. One thing, uh, Dave from Zoo Tennis. You do you go to Colette Lewis's uh, blog? Uh-huh. Yeah, periodically. Yeah, I don't do it daily, but I used to. Mm-hmm. Well, for our listeners, uh, she does a great job following junior tennis, college tennis, and even pro tennis. And she uh, earmarks you know those on the pro tour, for example, who, who played college tennis. So I think, especially the tennis parents, would just go to Zoo Tennis. Um, but these these numbers, or the, excuse me, these names and numbers were from the semis and the finals yeah. of regional playoffs. That's right. David, your thoughts on uh, American tennis and how many Americans are playing uh, college tennis? Yeah, I was kind of talking about this a little bit here with George Goldoff. Um, he's back for a week, and I think it, uh, it it's interesting to me, and I, I think it ties in a little bit to the, the mission of the Great Basin. Um, you know, to me, I, I'm a big believer in people keeping their passion and their energy high and, and, uh, making sure they have their sprint at the right time of the race. And, um, I think that, uh, certainly in our country, um, the microwave mentality where people are pushing, you know, pushing the tournament circuit at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, so hard. And, uh, I see a lot of kids, you know, even kids inside of our program that uh, maybe didn't heed the advice and and they they just seem to be not as driven at a critical stage of the journey when it you know as they're as they're getting ready to complete juniors transition into college and I think they've uh, you know exposure is good but I think that they've they've reversed it where where it needs to be they they should have uh, built 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 and uh, you know they they could have found themselves at uh, that stage of the journey with more energy and they could have played at a better school. And, um, but, uh, you know, George and I were talking about it and um, he, he, as he was traveling Europe quite a bit this year and he just said the mentality was just so much different. It was just like, you know, a kid 
kid made their mind up that's what they were doing over there and you could just tell that 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 was that was what they were going to do we're here i think that and we have too many fallback plans we have too many plan b's plan c's and uh you know the hungry dog hunts best and i think that sometimes not having a not having a plan b is is the best plan you can have with uh george for our listeners he's a guest on our podcast I tease and say George Silveroff, not George Goldoff. I think he was number one in the U.S. and juniors, wasn't he? He's way up there. Yeah, one, one in the 18s. And went to the University of Texas, seven years in Tibet. He was seven years with us. Uh, <laughs> circumstantially, it was partly because of the pandemic. Um, but he told me an interesting story, Steve, to, uh, but finish up and I'll come back to it. Sorry, I didn't mean No, he's just that with George, I had met him when he was, I think, 13 years old. And uh, he was told to come and see me at that time. And then he, never, he never came out to see me. And then when he graduated from, I should say, when he finished from finished his four years, he hadn't graduated. He still had some coursework to do. And his father told me he had to get his degree before he could play. And then he came and spent a week with me. Um, but it's, it's a snapshot to come for that short period of time. But I think the seven months... Uh, that turned the light bulb on, you know, as far as seeing the light and knowing left from right. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it had a huge influence on him. He he was telling the story today to, to myself. And I think there were a couple of kids around and how, uh, when he was living in Mississippi at the start of his tennis journey, and he got an opportunity to go to the old Miss camp and, um, he went there and I, I think it was 12 and unders and, and told the guy, who was the head, current head coach at Mississippi at Ole Miss. And he said he wanted to, you know, whatever he had, what could he do to make the team someday there? And uh, the guy said, what's your ranking? And George said he was like 15 in Mississippi out of the 20 players. And, uh, um, and the guy said, well, it's, there's just no chance. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I've heard and that. George, tell that story. yeah. And he said, uh, yeah, he, you know, he had, he had a few things to say after that, but, um, yeah, he was, he wasn't definitely light. He, he was not, and I didn't know him like you did at that young age, but from, from all his accounts, he, he certainly wasn't lighting it up, uh, at that stage with travel or anything, let alone his level of play. But, um, well, he's hungry. Alex and our listeners, I met David in Tyler, Texas. We had a program for tennis teachers. And when I first got there, I was told that the players from Tyler could not compete with the players from Dallas. <laughs> And I said, that makes absolutely no sense. I said, is the air different? What, what, what's different? <laughs> um, and I think with college tennis, um, I think too many American kids are just thinking D1 and thinking brand school. And, you know, it's they've got to go big time or bust. And they just got to get up every day and say, I want to be part of a game and I want to compete and not be so concerned about where they end up. And there'd be less anxiety. You'd be free, yeah. freer to just swing out and hit the ball. Sure. Yeah. I got one more thing to do before we start with your uh, do's and don'ts. Um, you put together a great list here. Our fact checker from Miami and Bogota, yeah. Andres Barbosa. Um, my glasses on here to see. Um, Mark Kovacs. I need to say it correctly. I've said Mark Novaks. I know it's Kovacs. Uh, Alex, a senior moment. Senior moment. Yeah, yeah, you'll yeah. have you'll have those one day. Um, he told me that I was giving Brad Gilbert too much credit. 
Um, what's what's uh, the name of the coach who uh, Tariq Benedip? Benedip, help me out here. Benaviles. Say that one more time. Say it one more time. Benaviles. Benaviles. That um, I'm not sure it was Raven Klassen and or and or me both said uh, who was coaching Roddick uh, when he had first beat Sampras. It, it was it wasn't Gilbert. It was a little bit. He said Gilbert didn't start till June of 2003. Um, he also mentioned that uh, um, I think Raven, you know, five ten, said that I uh, said Pete Sampras was one of the tallest players at the time. And <laughs> so the fact checker got it out, and you know, Pete wasn't one of the tallest players. I mean, he's really beating me up here too. With uh, but that's what you want, everybody. You want critics. I always telling the juniors, uh, just be polite when you hear a compliment, but just. Criticism is the juice. That's what you need. Is that uh, Coco Goff's mother? I said that she was a, a gymnast, and she was a gymnast first, and a, and a track star second. But there's a lot of things that uh, he's straightened me out on. So, but let's go with number one on the do's and don'ts: uh, back swings and mood swings. Dave Anderson's put some notes together for tennis parents. Uh, David, why don't you read number one, and we'll talk about it. You put me on the spot there because I I went to print it out. Uh oh. Uh oh. We can now, hold on. We can you, read it. We can you read guys it. Re, you guys read it because I uh I I don't want to play with my phone. I could pull it up on my phone, but I'm afraid I disconnect it. Yeah, yeah, your your phone skills are probably just as good better as better than mine. But uh let's have Eric excuse me, Derek. I mean, that's a my glasses here. Let me go with another uh brain care cramp. How do you say your last name again? Terzic. Terzic. Let's have Mr. Terzic. Read, the, read, first, read okay. the first line. All right. So the first one goes, uh, do emphasis fundamental development through the majority of your child's formative years. Yeah. Do emphasize form, you know, it, um, yeah, I'll let you guys talk first. I'm going to try to pull it up on my phone. It's bugging me. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it right now. I feel, I feel like somebody else has the remote control at my house when I'm watching TV. But go ahead. You guys, you guys share your thoughts on number one. I was telling a story the other day when I was a kid, I was a remote control. There were no remote <laughs> controls and I'm the youngest of six and I had to lay by the TV. And if there's two ball games on, uh, get up, change the channel, get up, change the channel. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do emphasis Definitely. on the fundamental development throughout the majority of your child's formative years. So some key words there. There's no fun in fundamentals. Well, there's fun at the end. But the word fundamentals, the fun fun comes first and embrace the boredom. Formative years take form, work on form. Form training, form-based instruction is almost obsolete. What do you got for us on number one, Dr. Anderson? Well, I mean, I think that I think our definition of formative years too is different than maybe some people. Um, I mean, to me, everybody that goes through our academy, even till the day they go off to college and, and beyond, they're still informed of stages. And, and, uh, you know, you and I were speaking about it just uh, prior to the call, uh, about, um, you're always going to have to have routine and you're always going to have to have some things that, uh, uh, stay true to building even better fundamental skills. And, but with, complete certainty i think everybody that's coaching tennis and has a has a caring interest in uh, 
the sport and, and the kids that are starting up in it that um, they would all agree that people are going to bat and they don't have, you know, they don't have uh, the skill sets to be able to, to stay in the sport. They're not going to really learn to enjoy the sport. And, and then the chance of not retaining them is so high. And, and I know I saw your stats the other day um, on the Facebook and it's, it, it's a prime reason I think we lose so many people and, and we can't dress it up. It is what it is. And, um, you know, in the early on stages, we got to give people the best possible chance to, to keep hitting the ball back and forth over the net. And it, and, and then they can really start to play the music and enjoy it. But um, fun is, you know, the, the teaching part of the fundamentals Um it's tricky and you know, you can do it in a manner obviously where it's focused, it's intense, it's active and, and the learning is kind of tricked into it. And, and, uh, I mean, it's an art and, and, uh, I think that if the USTA were to care about the game in the right manner, I'm sure they care about the game, the people that are involved in it, giving their time, but, in the right manner, I think there would just be a, a huge emphasis on on giving people truly the best possible start. And, and I know we have a lot of things in play right now regarding that, but uh, I'm not sure that it's initiating the kind of start that's that's catching kids in the sport. I don't think, I think the numbers would, would validate that. We need people like Mike Carter in every city in America. Um, Tell the listeners a little bit about Mike Carter. Yeah. I mean, Mike Carter, he's, uh, gave me my first job. Um, he was on the tennis tech staff when, uh, I was a student and then, uh, you know, gave me my first job out of, out of the program and, uh, you know, was in the private sector coaching, running clubs, doing all that. And now he's involved with USDA Texas. And I don't think there's a higher energy and more spirited, um, ambassador for the sport that I've met. Maybe Greg Perzuto. Um, you know, he's just, he's got it and he, he's, he's got the energy, he's got the information and really, I mean, if, if you could put Mike Carter or Fred Foreman in every club in America, I think tennis would grow. Um, I yeah, think that, that, that kind of spirit, that kind of energy. Craig Rizzuto wrote a book, uh, Tennis Munchkins for Dennis Vandermeer. And remember we had him out to, out, uh, our program right now to teach, uh, early child development classes. Yeah, the Pied Piper, um, like a you know Fred Foreman, who's it's uh, he's the best tennis teacher in the history of Minot, North Dakota, where David's from. Mm-hmm. So th- those guys are fast right. friends for a long time, and yeah, the Pied Piper. Uh, yeah, he may he may not be top five, and the other the other three behind me are teaching <laughs> continental grip <laughs> on everything, <laughs> and Freddie's still not top five. Uh, with uh, <laughs> but Carter. And we had him on as a guest. Uh, he spent five five years with me. And I just love that last name. Strong syllables. Carter. With, I was at the U.S. Open, and you know, U.S. Open's a big place. And someone said, uh, "Hey, you should have seen the demo." That's when the USTA called the program Quick Start. So mm-hmm. You should have seen this guy who ran his Quick Start clinic. It was absolutely awesome. And I said, "Yeah, what was his name?" He said, "Mike Carter." Mike Carter. I said, I've heard of him. I've heard of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With uh, no Carter was uh, 
he was there from day one when I showed up to Tyler to revise that uh, curriculum. Today, I listened to a match. Um, we used to study Vic Braden films as a group. David was part of that. Alex and listeners were. Mm -hmm. We would turn the sound down and just list, just watch Vic demo. Then also what we would do is you could blacken out the photo or the picture, the visual, and just listen to him. So my son Connor, you know, was playing tennis here, there, coming up in juniors in college. But I think this was more when he first broke into playing pro tennis. They actually mm -hmm. listened, listened to a match. So they, today at ITF out of uh, Woodbridge, Ontario, I was listening to a match. Coach from Montreal that I've trained was with a player that was playing. And then I said afterwards, uh, it doesn't sound like there was a lot of, a lot of net play. He said, yeah, she came in twice to, sh to the net and came in three times. He goes, it's twice to volley and the third time to shake hands. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's where, you know, you have to have fun. You know, winning's a bonus. Um, you know, just back to fundamentals, um, you know, kids will go years, literally years, playing one up, one back doubles, and then not even going, not even thinking of going forward while they play singles either. Um, way too much emphasis on winning and then mm -hmm. the stress. Um, you know, really comes right down to who's going to remember. I know you were with, with me when he worked uh, with Al, actually, Albin Mirari, was really who we did the work with. And his yeah. da daughter, uh, Karina, she was 28 in the world and won uh, doubles. And I just remember she was going to Europe. She'd only played two junior tournaments and she had a backhand where she took the racket low. And I finally convinced him. I said, let me show you a film because I was just charting matches for Karina twice a week. And immediately just canceled the trip to Europe. But she'd only played, she only played two national tournaments. And he was famous for saying, who, re, who remembers who plays a weekend tournament in Miami? Um, so way too much emphasis on winning and not on development. Um, with, uh, yeah. And that's, I think that's, I mean, it, it's, it's so easy to say, but it's hard to do for parents. And, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing because you see everybody around you go in the opposite direction and it's just such a natural instinct to follow. And, and, uh, you feel like you're missing out. And I mean, it, it's funny today when, uh, I had a visit from Ashlyn Kruger and her mother and, and her, uh, coach Michael Joyce, who's out with her. And I remember vividly at nine years old or whatever, you know, when they moved here and then she'd been training a bit uh, for a year or so. And, and then they, everybody was, you know, just prompting them to try to get into super champs, which was the top division in Texas. You got to get into super champs. Well, you know, the 12 and unders, she would have had another four years in it anyways. And they played a couple and them and, and the parents were very intelligent and, and just said, okay, this is nonsense. Let's just get the game right and, you know, basically play two tournaments when we need to, to win the champs and then immediately win the super champs and, and just get done with that. And, and, uh, so they were, they were, they made a lot of right moves in that regard and, uh, you know, and good for them because it, it's obviously paid dividends. And I think those moves for everybody changes, they go through their career path, juniors. And there, we have some kids that don't play enough. I'm sure you have the same. I mean, we have, we have some kids that kind of hide behind that a little bit, but, um, in the formative years though, it's just skills, skills, skills. And, you know, inevitably when we have, we're, we're having this big event at our club that's cut our 
tennis courts down by 75% and, and we're pushed into uh, smaller spaces and, and inevitably it's, it's some of the most productive classes in my opinion, because there's just no live ball and everybody's just working precision. I mean, hitting into curtains today uh, due to the rain, I mean, and, and hitting in racquetball courts and, and shadowing more and, it's got to be an ongoing thing. And the parents are certainly key in that. Oh, I remember going to Prague in 1987 at the Sparta Club. They had one indoor court. Um, there's so many places in Europe where young players, they don't get the court time in the wintertime. Uh, I want to come back and ask you about the 75% reduction. But with you know, start the course, finish the course, um, the Ashen Kruger, she won the Orange Bowl twice, correct? She won the USTA 18s. Yeah, back to back uh, Orange Bowls. Uh, I think Andrescu was the first one to do it. Yeah, not sixteen eighteens, but eighteen eighteens. Is that right? Uh, sixteen eighteens. Sixteen eighteens. Mm-hmm. I interrupted. Who else did that? Uh, Andrescu was the last player that had done that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but no, I I know you have a lot of film, and we have this Facebook account, Great Base Tennis Facebook. We've been putting up daily content for fifteen years, and I. I know there's been film of Ashwin when she was really young, you know, shadow swinging, hitting off a cone, drop hitting balls. Um, and you can see it in her game to this day. Um, give us an update. How is she doing? Uh, I think, well, you know, I've just been really cheering on from afar. Um, but uh, it seems like in the last two, three months, um, level of professionalism, uh, mannerisms on the court, everything in that regard has gone up. seems like there's a much, you know, maybe it took time for anybody really to get comfortable out there, but uh, um, has played matches where it's much more visible, the all-court play and the all-court, you know, skill sets that are there. And um, I think got into that 72, 73 range at one point. And I think she's hovering right around that now. I don't know where it's currently at, to be honest, but top 80 for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, going, uh, going, uh, the, the second half of this year has been a very positive part of it for her. And, uh, I think she, in her mind is established that she can, she can play with anybody in the world if she plays a particular way. So, yeah, I, so think, her, I think a lot of good things are heading for her. You know, her serve helps. I mean, I think she, uh, it'd be nice to see her play doubles and, and, and through that, uh, capitalize on her on her ability to play from the service line in because not many kids can, not many women yeah. on the tour, and more so even now than men. Yeah, yeah, seems that way. Seventy five percent reduction. Tell us how many indoor courts you had, and I know I've been out there many times. What's it look like now? Your programs at your your I should say your facility has been renovated. Has had a facelift. Yeah, I I think I mentioned that uh, months back that we were getting ready to host the, uh, I should know the name of it, but it's basically the the National Pickleball event that was held out in Palm Springs. And uh, and then there's, you know, all the Major League Pickleball or MLP, I think they call it. It's all held here starting November 2nd. And back May 15th when uh, invited clubs decided to located to Brookhaven and, and took the bid. And, um, you know, we, we have, uh, 
really 16 indoor courts, eight climate control, eight covered, um, five clay, um, 14 outdoor hard, and then another stadium outdoor hard. So, um, you know, so there's a, a lot of courts. And, uh, but we're down now because uh, last week, in preparation for the tournament, they, I mean, we, we had our whole facility basically got to complete. You, you really won't recognize it, Steve, when you come back out hopefully soon. And, um, the tennis is all on one side of the facility, kind of by my old court four that I used to teach on. And, um, now it goes out. They cut into the golf course to make more room for tennis, which doesn't happen at, they, they put six tennis courts on what used to be the, the fairway and the green at part of our golf course. We you know we have three 18 old golf courses and they just shorten them, but, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. All brand new courts, post tension, LED lighting, a huge pavilion, Don or Billy Freer, outdoors so that the people have a comfortable watching area. Um, Billy was our, our director of racket sports for 30 years and passed away uh, a couple of months ago, lost his battle with cancer and, you know, uh, invited clubs, wanted to honor him by putting his name up there and, and keeping it forever etched in the, the history of the facility. And, um, but now the, the outdoor courts have, uh, as of really today, begun uh, the repainting for pickleball. So they're coming in, they're repainting all of the covered courts, all of our outdoor tennis courts, and they already have about 30 existing pickleball courts on the side, Steve, that wow. south side where we used to have our backboard. Wow. So the whole one half of uh, the building, and it's really interesting for those of you that haven't been there that may be listening to to get on and just look at the rendering of what this event is going to be like. And, and you know, the, the entire drive in, I mean, it, you have to shuttle in and it's going to be basically like the Indian Wells uh, tennis event in terms of vendors, live concerts. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's huge. But so we're, we're down to uh, 13 courts for, which doesn't sound too bad to many, but you know, we, we have a huge, huge membership and very active club. And so we're down to 13 courts for our 25 pros and our full-time program and our members to, to kind of share and, and make do with until the week of uh, November 13th, the tournament ends on the 12th and, and they start painting on the 12th. The minute that the tournament ends, they repaint all of our tennis back to, or yeah, the tennis courts back to tennis courts. That's going to be an annual event. Don't know for sure. I, I've heard things back and forth. I'm not really, uh, you know, in the loop on whether we're going to host it for a number of years or not. I think a lot of it will have to do with the success of this one. But uh, I've heard rumors that, yeah, there is extended contract. Um, but, you know, all of our renovations have been done now. So it'll be much, if we do have it next year, it'll be a much smoother event. Wiffle ball tennis. Is uh, pickleball big in, in Toronto? Um it's getting bigger and bigger, but we don't have any, no outdoor facilities um, are doing it yet. Everyone's just kind of converting some spaces on the inside and keeping it indoors for the most part. Nobody wants to hear those balls bouncing around. Just just for a minute the other day, I was in front of the Tennis Channel, but tennis wasn't on. It was uh, Ryler DeHart's wife, uh, Megan. She holding the trophy up. I guess she's four in the world. Um, in, pickleball. in Pickleball. In Pickleball. Yeah, and that's, Ryler's doing that full time now. Let me go. Number, probably, they may be here. Yeah. Pardon me? No, they probably will be. I mean, yeah, I bet they would be. Yeah. 
Number two, I number number one in the world. I can I can even read them now, Steve. I pulled it up. All right, number two. uh, Let's go. I got I got my remote back. Let me just peek at my phone here. All right, number two. Yes. Do your research on your instruction you're receiving. Examine the information as it relates to facts, not opinion. Yeah, that's a, a leads to a question. How can parents find out if they're being taught fact facts versus opinion? That's a, Andre, the coach, you know, that uh, you know well from the podcast that he did with you. He's such a big part of uh, our program here. We were talking about that today. How do you, how do you as a parent discern? It'd be like you or I, Steve, taking our car in. I mean, we know nothing, at least unless you've learned a lot about cars. I remember oh, your yeah. knowledge was about like mine. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it's a very difficult thing. I mean, it, these days, I really believe the decision that is made currently is people look at where the good players are. And that's the assumption then that that's where good players are developed. And sometimes it might be the case. Um, there may be, uh, you know, truth to that in, in some cases, but, uh, I, I think that if you, you know, if you are a parent that's coming in cold with no tennis knowledge and you, you have a eight, seven, nine year old, whatever it is. Um, I think the first decision that they make is typically on proximity to their home. And I mean, the studies kind of show that and it's just, okay, where can I um, take my child to a nearby facility or court and municipality, whatever it is, and, and, and introduce them to tennis. And, um, and that's typically how people get in. And then as they get more and more serious about it, it seems like then they start to expand the radius a little bit. And, and that's where I think it may be more up to us as a tennis teaching profession than it is to the parents in that regard, because if we had a, you know, a, a more, solid front in how we were introducing kids to the sport and, and, a, and a unified approach in how the, we were doing it, um, it really wouldn't matter. And it, again, I, I don't really, I'm, I'm old now and if I heard any feelings, but I mean, it's not going to happen through a USPTA or USPTR certification. And, uh, but that, that's how kids are getting introduced and, and the chance, again, the retention I think horrible. I I tease medical doctors and said it's so much easier to be a doctor than a tennis professional. I said, you know, to be Mm -hmm. be a tennis professional, it used to be $200 in two days to be certified. And, you know, I remember the PTR and use PTA and think people should in this country go that route. You know, if you want to have a voice, I don't think you can be critical unless you're on the inside and you, you know those organizations and you're proactive, but Oh uh, yeah, certification is not education. With, and then I think also now it's very tough on parents if they're going to judge a program based on who's in the program. And this didn't exist way back when I got into tennis. That there's recruiting in junior development. There's backroom deals. Um, you know, I think you know the late Paul Terry. You know, I respected Nick in so many ways, but um, most of the it's like Andre Agassi. You know, he'd won the national four teams before he went to. Went to Nick's. Um, you know, that's how Nick went bankrupt so many times. He'd see somebody who's a really good player and say, hey, I need you to come to uh, Bradenton. 
but no, I think that is a, you know, you know, to do the research, even when someone doesn't like a program, then they, what they do, what they do, they say, well, you know, we fired the coach. They weren't telling us what we wanted to hear. And they just go, you know, 10 or 12 miles down the road and um, find a new program. It's not like they go on a national search. Mm-hmm. I do think to talk, yeah. to talk to a tennis parent who's been in it for 10 years, who's had a child who's at least got to the college level. I always tease and say, you know, the smartest player at a 10 and under tournament is, or the smartest person at a 10 and under tournament is the parent of the kid who wins a 10 and under tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, that word loco, you know, which means crazy in Spanish, the, the local tennis scene, locals talk to locals. And, you know, a lot of times people just don't have enough exposure. Um, but yeah, to, yeah, I think the, the internet's probably hurt it a little um, because, you know, if they scan to try to find resources on it and, um, you know, what are the odds on stumbling upon the grade-based curriculum, which could really train a parent to, to make educated choices or, you know, some of the other, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of good, uh, you know, information out there from other sources that is in the ballpark too, but um, I, I don't know how they discern it. I don't know how they would, with, with no knowledge of it, I don't know how they would really uh, um, be able to tell the difference between what's good, what's bad. Well, I think uh, if, there, if there's, I, if, I think if there's one tip off, if there's too much self-promotion, um, yeah. if, it's, if it's too much marketing, um, I think that's, I think there's certainly overselling, you know, come to our program because it's the best. And, you know, that's where, you know, say for example, in, in Spain, um, if you're teaching it at a, a municipality park and rec versus, uh, you know, elite Academy or a posh resort, you're still respected. A forehand still a forehand. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's what America is a great place to be. It's great to be American, but, um, that, that phrase, uh, to be Americanized, um, you know, there's, there's no quick fix and, you know, this is going to take time. And, um, you know, even, even the governing body of tennis too is, um, there's too much a rush to, uh, you know, quick start. Remember that, that name, the USDA had for early childhood development, how, how the great base got started is I wrote an article and I said, it's, a kid doesn't need a quick start. They need the right start. And that's where Richard Hernandez mm-hmm. said that, that tennis needs a great base initiative. Uh, Braden used to say that you can judge a program based on, you know, the child who learns the slowest. So when it buys the ice cream cone and puts it in the middle, middle of their forehead, if that kid can play tennis, you know, they go to the water fountain and they can't make the water hit their lips. Uh, if you can get that person to play, you know, he would go on and say, you know, if you could take, if you could change someone from palm up to palm down, but I think it's really extreme where there's kids that have played like five years and their parents are paying hefty professional fees and they, they, the kid, they, the coach, they, the parent, they don't even know the kids got a palm up serve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, why don't you read that to us? All right. Let me flip my phone. Do you have, do you have a flip phone? <laughs> Not a flip phone, but I, I don't know how to keep it on the screen. I got it now though. 
but I'm not I'm not reading it with glasses, so that's a plus. Huh. All right, number three. Do have your child multi-sport well into their early teens. Blending a team sport with individual sports is very healthy. Yeah, early child development. Kids should be learning uh, cooperative skills, athletic skills, and tennis skills. Cooperative, learn to be on a team. The acronym, together everyone accomplishes more. I think more and more, uh, we had Steve Robertson talking about Generation Z, but the alpha generation is you have families with one child. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's tough. You know, these electronic toys, kids can't even play catch. Yeah, I, you know, I was telling our group the other day how, you know, they, it, it's, it's a, full-time in the academies, a lot of time and hours. And, and uh, I said, but they, they may not have time to, or the ability to, to play on, uh, you know, a bona fide high school basketball team or soccer team or whatever. But, you know, recreation, uh, a lot of the recreation centers around the city, I mean, they can jump on these rec teams. And, and play a sport they like. Um, you hear so many kids say, I used to do that. I really liked it. And I, I, I try to encourage them to keep playing it in some capacity. It doesn't have to consume their life where it's as though they're going at it, you know, like a, uh, in pursuit of a collegiate scholarship or something. But um, kids, you know, kids haven't played a lot of sports. And then the ones that did dabble a little bit in it gave it up. And, and they are just solo in uh their pursuit of, of building a, a well-rounded athletic kind of skill set with their body. And, and uh, I think it's a mistake. I think that, I think that you can benefit from doing the other things. You just, you know, I think when people do things now in America, they don't do them casually anymore. Um, they don't shoot hoops in their driveway. They don't do that kind of stuff too often. It seems. Um, I mean, I'm looking out at a basketball hoop in my driveway right now and, you know, I don't, I don't use it enough. I could go out there and just shoot hoops and get a little light exercise. And, and uh, the kids just don't do it. I was, when I was pulling in tonight, I, I saw a brother and sister right across the street, probably eight and 10 years old. And the girl was pitching to him and the little boy was hitting a, a real ball and running bases in their front yard. And it was more of a throwback to a, a different era. And uh, it was good to see. Yeah. I think basketball um, even if you don't have a hoop, that's in YouTube. Certainly there is a lot of witchcraft as far as tennis instruction is concerned, but you know, say a, a tennis ladder for footwork is just get on YouTube. YouTube can be very positive, but dribble basketball backwards, forwards, in and out of pylons, hopping on your left foot, hopping on your right foot. Um, well, certainly it's fun to be, to then advance where you're, um, you know, playing some pickup basketball. It's not that expensive. I mean, soccer is not that expensive. Soccer, I've been told here in the States that kids just don't play, um, you know, just around the world. You you would know, Alex, around the world, soccer is just instantly picked up, just just playing it. Uh, I've had many times where, say, for example, pick a number out of the sky, you had 18 kids and uh, you had 12 Americans and six foreigners that will play soccer. And I'll go, okay, all the foreigners down there will be six against 12. And I know soccer mm -hmm. is improved in this country, but um, I think more and more uh, the kids who play tennis are just one sport athletes. Um, and I think cross training, even in the junior development programs, when kids show up, uh, I do think the typical country club, you know, is 
little bit of golf, a little bit of swim, a little bit of tennis, but uh, have kids show up and do these, do exercises, do, do events, do a touch, you know, touch upon sports that would make them better athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, basic calisthenics. <laughs> what's that? I, I said basic calisthenics are kind of gone. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, number four, the do's. Number four. These are the do's. Do have your child pay it forward by mentoring a sibling or a friend. Teaching equates to greater retention of the information. Yeah, I have a practice partner for an older player. I mean, I'm always asking high school players, do you know any varsity player that's ever called up a JV player, junior varsity, and say, hey, you want to do some baskets? Uh, hey, I'm, I'm starting to practice at 9 o'clock with so-and-so. Can you Let's meet at 8 o'clock and we'll just do overheads. You feed me 10, I'll feed you 10, or it's a choice. You feed me 10, I'll feed you 10. Just getting out there with baskets. Um they, you know, I think adult tennis for sure is on the women's side. I think the, the men uh, pretty much just come out and have their, maybe their drill session, slap each other on the back and having a beer, but <laughs> the late breaking clicks, you know, where people in women's tennis, uh, okay, there's, how you know, does the three O get to play with the four O's? Um, but the same, Not often. <laughs> same, same thing in the juniors, you know. Yeah. Don't be a tennis snob, hit with everybody. Yeah, there's a lot of sensitivity about that. Yeah, I mean, gr- you know, groupings. When you're in places where the main concern amongst the kids and the parents is gr- are, are groupings, um, it seems to me that seldom is it a developmental inside or culture inside of the program. Um, when it's just groupings, 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 who am I with? And, uh, you know, it. I think there's a, a direct correlation between that and, and, and probably not having a developmental scene in, uh, inside of the culture of the program. Alex is a young coach. I tell young coaches I train up, don't say this. This is how I answer it, but don't do this. His parents will say, um, who's going to be in my child's group? And I'll say, well, that's a dumb question. Do you have another question? <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, we know to a certain point, if you're hitting with a player who hits the ball, deeper, faster, more consistently, higher level frequency that, oh yeah, it's going to help you shorten up your swing. So there are advantages to playing with a a, a more skilled player, but it's a major problem that you play with everybody. And it should be, I always tell the player, the older player, so the so-called better player, if the player you're missing, player you're hitting with misses, it's your fault. I mean, have gears, be able to slow it down, be able to put the ball right on a dime. And you know, that doesn't happen enough. Yeah, and you know, we when we went, made that trip down to Austin to to speak uh, with Mike a few weeks back, took six kids with us, Andreas and I, and you know, it was I, we told him. I mean, it was like six hours, three there, three back, and and it was just talking tennis, and the radio wasn't on, and and uh but that was one of the big things we were pushing because the kids that went were certainly the leadership qualities already established and um but we gave all of them basically a, a task to when they got back to the program um 
they were supposed to kind of adopt and mentor one particular player. And I think one out of the six is executed. Um, and, you know, they it, it is interesting. They all picked a, you know, a great little nine-year-old or something. And and uh, I think they're missing the, missing the boat a little bit on it because, you know, the real goal from my end anyways is to get those kids that are, you know, decent state or national players and 15, 16 years old to take some kid that's kind of in the shadows, make a difference in their life. Um, you know, I find that the, the, the good kids get too much attention. Um, anyways, the talented kids, I mean, just from other kids, from parents, from coaches and, um, the kids in the shadows are who we need to, I think, be focusing a whole lot more on. At least, maybe I'm just getting old, but it sure seems that way. I think the sport would be healthier. I heard Paul McDonald say this one time, you know, you, you coach someone long enough, you you can just tell stories about that, that kid you've coached. Um, I remember, uh, you may have been with me, I took a group of kids into Dallas at a it wasn't the USPTA. I think it was the TPTA, the Texas. It was a Texas branch of the yeah. USPTA. Yeah. That's and, a great find, Hilton. And uh, yeah, so Timmy Hurst, he played. Mm-hmm. They were taking him in. Julie Scott, Clayton Stanley, and Lisa Kimmel. And um, Timmy had grip on three on the forehand side. So because everybody was accusing us of teaching everybody the same, Julie had a two-handed forehand and stayed with a two-handed forehand. Clayton was close to five. He was really small, and and he eventually wasn't on five. But it was the battle not to have him go towards five. And uh, and Lissa was you know close to four. And Timmy ended up playing at SMU. Julie played at Stanford. Clayton played at Texas, and Lissa Kimmel played at Illinois. Um, I remember Illinois. I went up to do a Labor Day camp. And she was a freshman and I took Craig Tiley with me to help me out. Um, so Lisa Kimmel made it to Illinois before Craig Tiley did. Um, and their listeners should know that Craig Tiley, he took all this technical uh, fact-based instruction to Illinois and they went from obscurity to being the national champions. Wow. But yeah, so how did that clinic go in Austin with the, I'm sure the six kids you took down all play well, right? Yeah, it was a group of kids like Mason, three girls, three boys. Um, and they, they certainly could demonstrate everything uh, on a dime. And it, it, was, it went fine. It was, uh, you know, I think when I was traveling to those things with UC when I was younger, you basically said it. It's uh, the people usually sitting in the chair aren't the ones that need it as much. It's people that are sitting out networking outside of the closed doors and, um the ones not attending need it the most because they typically are in influential positions and they are walking around assuming they do know it all already. And, you know, it's, it's like, uh, like they say, it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. And, um, it was uh, right when this finished and, and there was a lot of positive feedback. Some people, I think that, uh, you know, a bit older than me that, that, had been a part of Vic Braden's um, certification courses and, and things back in Kodo years ago in the seventies. And um, the feedback seemed to be pretty positive. And I, you know, was basically 
every two minutes, giving people hints to to get uh, onto the Great Base in terms of um, trying to study the curriculum and how it was free. And there were a few parents that I think have plugged in since, and and uh, it it went well it it's you know and um but they had a director of competitive tennis for texas you know as i opened the door to leave uh, the, it was done indoors on a in a conference room um the tennis court was set up inside and you know he was right outside the door and and uh went over and he said hey i'm sorry i couldn't be there i had a committee meeting and you know he he really needed to be there in my opinion, and uh, it's nothing against him. And like I said, I'm way too old to worry about playing politics. So, um, but the word's got to spread on that kind of thing. And it, I'm by no means the only person that can spread it. It's just that it's common sense. It's it's fact-based information. It's a systematic approach. And, you know, I said in that meeting, I said that the bottom line is, uh, inside of this room, not everybody's going to agree on what a continental grip is. And I said, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And um, there needs to be uniformity. There needs to be uniformity. I mean, we're doing a, you know, tonight's theme is based on 10 do's, 10 don'ts for parents. But, um, you know, we, we as a group of coaches, I mean, we could come up with 10 do's and 10 don'ts for, for, for our teaching industry too. And we could come up with a hundred in each of those. Um, but yeah, you mentioned Mason Vaughn, uh, Mason, um, you just, uh, broke into the top 10 and 14 and others nationally, his father and grandfather, they came to Memphis for the first time and then they followed us to Florida for several visits and and such. And yeah, but Holt and George, uh, father, grandfather, Holt, who played at Davidson became a very good player, but uh, he didn't know um, at the time why, you know, these kids in Little Tyler, Texas, uh, were, you know, making an imprint on Texas tennis at that time. But it was because they were being taught fundamentals. Let, let's go with number five. Let me pull it up. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Number five, do manage your child's academics, nutrition, and character development. These areas managed well will help coaches tremendously. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've had fun at tennis camps where I said, okay, you get 25 kids at a tennis camp, whatever the number is, and said, okay, let's go around and name cereals. Mm-hmm. Name cereals. And it's there used to be a cereal called Sugar Speck. And Alex, our listeners, Smack is a name for heroin. But uh, Cocoa, Cocoa Puffs, Captain Crunch, Fruit Loops. He, this, it's amazing, the names. It just keeps going and going. Count Dracula, Lucky Charms, Toucan Sam. There you go. Yeah. I, was, I was waiting for the Lucky Charms. Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> I used to put sugar on Lucky Charms. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, have to brush your teeth quite a bit with uh, Doctor <laughs> yeah. Doctor Louis Cap. He's still going strong with uh, professional tennis registry, mm-hmm. Mayor Tennis. I'm not sure how many years in a row he's run the Boston Marathon, but I was having breakfast with him one time, and he put Doctor Pepper on his cereal, <laughs> and basically said, "You know, as long as I brush my teeth, I'm okay." <laughs> 
It's, if you want to run, you know, 20 miles a day, I think you can eat uh, Lucky Charms. But nutrition is huge. I mean, Djokovic, I mean, flexibility, nutrition, amazing. Uh, I want to say a little bit about character development. I think that's uh, the missing piece most of the time. Sorry. Yeah, the I, I told a parent the other day, I said, I kind of lost my temper. I don't do it like I used to, but I still do it occasionally. And, you know, I said, listen, I said, we've known each other a while. I said, I really don't want to talk to you about your kids for a backhand. I said, I, I don't run into a lot of coaches. I want to talk to kids about kids for a backhand. And it, it, I said, but I need you to focus on, that's kind of why it prompted me to do this. I need you to focus on your kids, work ethic, character development, nutrition, academics. And as far as the character development, I mean, I think that everything that coaches do in general in sport can be completely derailed around the house. And the conversations that are held in probably a benign manner where they're not even maybe attempting to, um, you know, take uh, a, a controversial role with the, with the coaching or the process. Um, there's just, you know, so much that I see where kids are just given too many votes in regard to this whole thing. And the, the, the choices and the votes, I mean, they're really illusions. And the character development, you know, of the parents are just, that we, we need the parents to be a driving force in regard to making the kids stick to their routines at home, making sure that the kids do get to the practices um, that they're, that they're scheduled to be at um, holding them accountable to things that we don't have that ability to do because we're not with them 24 seven in the house. I mean, we're with them a lot, probably more than some, in some cases than they are around their house, but, when we're around them, we can control those thoughts. I mean, you, you having the kids in the tennis house, um, you can probably alter the pathway of some of these kids in a, in a far greater manner. Um, you know, thinking of Mason Vaughn when he lived here, I'm in the room he lived in. We actually have a nice room set up for him now. It wasn't that nice when he was here. And, um, but it, it's easier to get inside and change somebody. And when you can control that, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, your son, Connor. I mean, when he lived with you, you know, you were guiding his tennis and you got him on the path. That was unbelievable. And I mean, he came and lived with me for a bit. And I mean, who is he going to complain to really? There was nowhere to complain and then no one to listen to the complaints. And, and I think the character development of an athlete is getting tougher and tougher. I bet it is that way across the board in other sports. Cause when I speak to, to, to some people that are involved in um, teaching youth sport in general, um, seeing they, you know any any reprimand of a child is followed up with uh, meetings, meetings, meetings. Every, everything's meetings, trying to figure out you know the resolution to it. And uh, sometimes meetings are necessary, but I don't know. It seems from my end, anyways, it seems like that <laughs> the majority of them really don't need to occur. What happened happened and that's it. Everybody needs to take their licks and move on. 
I've had many uh, pros that I've trained send send players to work with me, and uh, they're here for, say two weeks, and there's their coach will say this that after two weeks I know them better than they do for uh, in, for two years. They've been working with them every day for two years. Yeah. Um, it, it it is very important for for children, and the parents need to make sure obviously they're in a safe environment, but they need to do things. Uh, away from home uh, they need to do things away from their parents you know their parents uh understandably kids are overprotected but as a result they're underprepared um but you know the academics yeah. is huge you know that's the invisible tsunami you know if you don't do well academically there's almost five thousand colleges and if you don't do well academically you can only apply to so many of them um but yeah, I mean, I think on the nutrition side, I've always said it's uh, it's it's easier to go run uh, five miles than it is to push the chocolate chip cookies away. But the yeah. the, the character side of it, uh, I do think the sensitivity. Um, you know, one of the problems is the parents are too sensitive. Is that the parents have to be able to take criticism, say, "Hey, this is this is where your kid's at," and you know, I think that's really changed. I think years ago, the parents were looking to have their child really be parented by other, you know, teachers and coaches. For sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, let's go with number six. Number six. Pulling it up. Number six. Do study the player parent coach handbook by Dr. Jim Lair. And it just says getting the three-legged stool is in order helps the journey. I've always kind of called it the three-legged stool. Um, I think that book by Lair was genius, um, written decades ago. I still keep a couple of copies. I bought a few extra, and I don't know what you know. Probably, probably can't find some of them because you, you give them away for people to read, and they never get back in your hands. But um, I think establishing. And it'll change throughout the journey, but establishing the roles that um, people are going to assume, the responsibilities. And, uh, you know, it, I think as Shane Vincent, his dad was all in. He was a coach. He was, in my opinion, the most influential coach in Shane's life, really, in, in, in the journey. And, and, um, but it was, it was spelled out that, that he, he wasn't, he wasn't going to just pass the baton to somebody and, and let it go. He wanted to stay involved in the process. And, you talk about character development. That's a guy who could come on here and probably give give a million ideas on how to get your kid to be a warrior because he, he made one out of his son. And uh, um, but I, I think that there's there's a lot of gray area that can exist, and I think we're in times that you can't be that subtle in people in our position anymore. It's it's got to not only be clearly outlined, but um, sometimes readjusted. You know, and it may not be readjusted always in the manner that maybe the parent wants or the player or, or even maybe that the coach wants. But getting it clear um, is so important, I think. With uh, Shane Vincent, real quiet guy, played tennis at Texas A&M. He's another player who's ranked one in the country, correct? Yeah, one Easter Bowl. Yeah, he, he could play. And he was he was at my place one time and – group of players and I said, all right, Shane, tell us who's the best player you've ever practiced with. 
I'm not shocked too often, but he said Roger Feder. I, I was a guy like, whoa, okay. But no, I think uh, uh, parents, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, and I've heard one brother tell a younger brother this. It was uh, the Zeter brothers. Uh, they both played at Illinois. Mm-hmm. And the older brother, um, Nathan Zeter and Evan Zeter, the fact checker, let me know on that. 99% correct is he said to his little brother, you got to find new friends. You got to make some new friends. Uh, you know, most of the time, uh, you know, got to be careful on who your buddies are because buddies could just be thieves of your time. But you know, I think the attitude of the household um, with Jim Lair, uh, he's written 17 books. Uh, I believe we dedicated two podcasts to Dr. Lair. And uh, then also he was a guest on our podcast. Uh, with a three-legged stool, you mean the, basically the triangle, the parent, the player, and and the coach? Yeah, yeah, that that's what I, you know, I just heard somebody refer to it that way somewhere along the line. And, um, you know, I think that in, I think problems arise when the when the stool's not in balance. And, and I think that when it's not in balance, it's because people um, aren't clear on what the expectations and the roles are. And, uh, um and I and I don't mean to say that only the parents and the and the player are, are out of balance. Sometimes it's the coach. Maybe the coach isn't uh, willing to do enough relative to what the people want. But I think uh, getting everything spelled out. I mean, to me, the beginning, the way that you do the beginning when people come to see you, um, you know, we're trying to make sure that whenever possible, that's how we start things with a, a player development assessment because it just eliminates a lot of problems in, in the early stages and uh, um, you know and then if a parent chooses to be involved I mean some have time some don't some want to some don't and and uh, but you know it's it definitely is an individual case study but I think in each case that our job kind of as the coaches is to try to get the stool in alignment and uh, make sure that it make sure that it's as balanced as possible figure out what roles are, are going to really get this thing down the road the best. No, and I think in that situation where the parents can study tennis, um, the child needs to realize tennis is expensive. And, hey, when you step on the tennis court, uh, don't think of your parent as a parent. Like, if they're out there, they're tossing you balls, or they're helping you, they're, you know. I think many times in that situation, if the parent doesn't have time, and they're, and they're just feeding balls, they should really emphasize on where to hit the ball, not how to hit the ball. That's right. You know, they just, if they were just to set up the target. Um, yeah, I think Vicky, Vicky Clark did that with Chad, I think what you just described. I think uh, Vicky Clark, who you know, held onto the racket in a manner where you could tell she wasn't a tennis player, but she just, you know, the racket went straight by her ankles and and she'd pump a ball over to the to the side, and and, and that was it. And then there was just tart. It was quadrant practice more than, you know, in combination with technique. But I think ultimately, I, I would say that it leaned more to quadrants. Um, yeah, all yeah, the, all these names. Sure. Uh, Vicky, mother of Chad Clark, Chad uh, from our group in East Texas. He was the first one to win a high school state championship, and then once he won it. It was amazing how many other people won uh, state championships. Uh, those kids I mentioned before, um, Julie Scott and Lisa Kimmel, 
they won five A doubles playing against uh, two kids from the same program. It was um, help me out, Laura Barrow. Is that right? Yeah, Laura Barrow. Yep. Who was she? Was actually Carmen Clark. Um, they both played at Texas Tech, right? Laura uh, didn't go to Tech. She, uh, but Carmen did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Laura went on, and she she decided not to pursue college tennis after a short time. She was in the building, uh, one of the buildings, one of the twin towers, right? Ninety two thousand one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, with yeah. um, but yeah, um, those girls uh, played in the five A Texas final. At that time, there were seventeen million people in Texas, and they served and volleyed every ball. Wow. Um, but, you know, it's just amazing how many how much bad Milan players have. Um, you know, um, your players that just they play five years of one up, one back doubles. Um, yeah, but with um, let's go with number seven, the dues. Seven and the dues. Mm-hmm. Mountain Dew. You've do you, do do seven seven. Do respect the professional relationship with your coach. Meetings often can be held in less than ending ball pickups. Coaches are there for the child, but boundaries are critical for longevity. That's my thoughts. A few of them. Well, um, with the dews, uh, you're off Mountain Dew now, right? You don't drink Mountain Dew anymore? I am, I am off Mountain Dew, but all of this tonight, saying the word dew has kind of served as a little trigger for me. I might go to 7-Eleven. <laughs> I'm kind of craving a craving a 20-ounce and an Eau Claire. With, uh, so break down number seven for us. Well, I mean, to me, I think that uh, I'm kind of shocked. You know, I we're not dealing with life or death, but we're we're dealing with you know a lot of very important things, and um, and I think that when you you know when you and I and and Alex and, and whoever's in the business coaching kids and the anxiety and the the, the way that people react, I think it's perspective a little bit. Um, you know it. It, it it's amazing to me how frantic people get and when they get frantic there's always a meeting and i think that why i've developed a little bit of uh you know you, you hear me kind of allude to it often where too many meetings I, I i think it's in an effort to try to nullify this whole panic and um you know there's an inner calm that can happen when you just trust the process and you don't feel like you're, you're constantly uh, needing to readjust. And, and, and because you played a pusher in a tournament this weekend, how do you handle a pusher? And then the next week of practice at places, people want their kids to play a pusher. Um, whereas before that tournament, if you had put them against a pusher, you would have got a phone call saying they don't want to play pushers. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's almost, it, it literally is mind boggling to me. And, and so, you know, I, I've kind of taken an approach with meetings where I, I used to really welcome them and I thought I was doing a service. And then in my mind, for me anyways, I think I was doing a disservice and, since I've kind of taken this approach where um, and when Wayne Bryan was here doing a clinic and he just spent a day or two at the club and he kind of saw the interactions and he, he looked at me and he said, you're too accessible with your time. And he said, and it's and, and eventually he said, people are going to devalue it anyways. Um, 
he said what he did. He goes, you can follow my advice or not. And he said, he just, he just started telling people we can use the last 10 minutes of the ball pickup of your child's lesson to meet. And he said, you know, he, he was a funny guy. And he, he's like, you'd be amazed how quickly we got to the point. He said where previously he'd be sitting there and they'd be telling him about, you know, the third, the, 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 the fifth year that they had a birthday party. And, you know, he said these meetings became just senseless. And, um, and I, I really have found the same thing. Um, I called a meeting the other day because a kid shattered a racket and I asked the mom and dad to be there. And, you know, it was a little kid and, um, they said the kid didn't want to go inside the building to come. And that's a different kind of meeting. And I mapped out an hour. It took 20 minutes and it was done, but, um, that meeting needed to happen. But I think that many of the meetings that people perceive as needing to happen, I don't think they do. I think it's just panic. To my understanding, Wayne, um, father of the Brian twins, you went through law school, you finished law school, but you never practiced law. But I've always told tennis teachers, can you imagine if you could charge like a lawyer? Every time, yeah. every time you make a phone call, every time you have a conversation, it's, you know, you hit, hit the button. Uh, you said that once on a previous podcast, and, and that's fine. But those, those who uh, get involved in player development, there is all sorts of extra hours, extra yeah. hours. Um, and I, yeah, and I tell parents often, I'd rather, I'd rather give 30 minutes pumping balls out and fixing something. I mean, but, but the, there's necessary meetings. There are necessary meetings. There are things that need to be sat down and, and slowly navigated through. Um, but I think that the majority of them that I encounter anyways are meetings out of panic. And, and I think that by allowing those meetings to take place, I was really enabling. And uh, by shutting it down a little bit more, I think I, I'm happy with the results anyways that I've seen. Well, I think also to programming, uh, I've done a lot of program where it's immersion camps and the parents attend and you know, they're away from their job, they're away from their home. And I welcome them to come and hang out, you know, be, you know, you can be here around the clock. And we, when we go in and break down video, you can be in the room and, um, but that's different than when it's, you know, after school and, you know, it's just too, too much drama. Uh, that those type of things didn't didn't exist before. Um, I do think that there's, no, there's certainly over coaching, but there's over parenting as well. Um, number eight, yeah, just too much attention. Yeah, number eight. Well, coming. Sorry to interrupt. Too much attention for sure. For sure, families are smaller, and I think that was one thing when families were larger. Um, you're from a family of five, right? Yeah, five. Yeah, I'm from a family of six, and um, yeah. The smaller the family, the more attention you get. Number eight, yeah. you got to be great. Don't be late. Number eight, do hold your child accountable for at-home practice routines. In that sense, you are the assistant coach. Okay. Uh, I've had coaches uh, schedule privates, and it's it generally becomes more to private because they have to drive to the parent's house and – um, okay. Show, show me where the, where you, where you put the mirrors up. Show me where you practice off the court. Show me the ladder. Show me the skip rope. Show me the practice log. Show me the, the, uh, uh, where, you know, where, where you hang the camera, where you, um, I'm drawing a blank. What's the word for hanging a camera, Alex? 
Mounting. Mounting, yeah. Mounting. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you got tripod? I'm looking. I'm looking for tripod, but like the Canadian Mounties. <laughs> we, we were doing. The, we were doing the Canadian Mounted Police the other day, where you just stand in one place and do a series of one minute exercises. And with tennis kids, I don't want to be doom and gloom, but they can only, for the most part, okay, thirty seconds of push ups. They can't do one minute of push ups. Um, yeah. But practicing at home, you know, practice before practice, after practice. Uh, you know, Jim Klein, who was a classmate of yours, he was just here with a group of his coaches and players, and he's been a guest on our podcast. And, you know, just say, okay, guys, you know, the parents are in the room. And it was a combination of adult junior camp. And, uh, you know, the kid who was the best player, I said, okay, who wakes you up in the morning? Just look me in the eye, yes or no. Does your mom still wake you up? And the kid goes, yeah, my mom still wakes me up. You know, then I put my thumb and forefinger in the shape of the letter L and what's this mean? And I've never been in a country where someone doesn't know that means loser. Uh, you know, you really shouldn't be 16, 17 years old and your mother's waking you up, but go ahead more on home practice. What do you got? Well, I think again, the way you start people, I think every, I mean, if, if every program, maybe, maybe, maybe people don't buy off on all of our information that we're trying to, to throw out, but if they would buy off on doing a proper assessment day one. And I think that from there, part of that assessment is, in, is, is setting up the initial routine and, um, you know, people that people that really have a story to tell at the end seem like they just follow a pathway like that. And, you know, going back to, not to, you know, keep throwing a name out or whatever, but I think of the Krugers. I mean, they were just told backboard, mirror, cones, and some agility things in their garage. And they just did it instantly from a young age. And they did it. Um, another girl who came down to see you, um, Kayla Shecky, with her uh, father. And um, the dad has just been very diligent about, you know, making the kids stay to their routines. Um, and they fight them. They fight them as they get older. Kayla, you know, she's headed to SMU next year, just, uh, uh, committed to, to play tennis for them. Um, and, but. And that's probably a full scholarship at a beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she had opportunities for Ohio state, uh, all, all over, but Ohio state was a uh, three year. Um, they needed a number one this year next year coming in and Kayla is a very good player as you know um, final daddy her in doubles with a broken hand and uh, uh, played all one-handed backhands but um, yeah she'll be an impact player and more importantly she'll be she'll be the kind of player in the locker room who builds the team chemistry in the right way but dad's, just, a, dad's a Michigan State guy right he is yeah you Michigan go. State guy the Spartan yeah, he's very good tennis parent, and you know we've we've got uh, fortunate. We have a lot of good ones. Um, I've talked about you know obviously Holt, and I mean there's others. Alex Brotman, who has literally listened to every episode, and uh, um, he told me the other day he said he feels like he knows your son Connor through the podcast. Um, so you know there's a lot of people that do. Um, follow the pathway in a, in a pretty productive manner, but I don't know why it's so hard for others to, to not understand that with, without these 
routines at home or routines in general. And, and the, the, as you said, the attitude of the household, it, it's just going to fall short and then it's going to lead to frustration. And, and typically in this country, that frustration means they jump ship and jump program, change coaches. And we inherit some people inherit some of ours and, and, uh, and it never goes anywhere because then less and less accountability falls on the player. Well, can you name a player? Uh, I don't think I can name a player who started the program, left the program, and they did better after they left the program. I don't think I can name one. That, that they, if they had stayed the course and the pathway they were on, um, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, and I, yeah. um, when I think of practice routines and, you know, people come here to visit and say, okay, call me up in two weeks and I, um, can just ask a battery of all these questions and do you do this, do you do this, do this? And it's no, no, no. Um, and it really, part of it, maybe the biggest part is the telephone. I was yeah. just a thief of their time. Let's go with number yeah. nine. Number nine coming up. Having a little trouble finding number nine. There it is. Number nine, do learn from the coach how you can become a positive part of the skill acquisition for your child. Learning key checkpoints can allow for more repetition and growth. Yeah. If if parents play tennis, uh, I've encouraged them, even if they don't play tennis, uh, you can it's not mandatory, but you could actually, the, the parent could be filmed themselves and say, hey, teach your, teach your mother, teach your father how to hit a ball. You know, so it's not all about the child. Again, coming back to the child gets too much attention. You know, mm-hmm. you know it's not about you. You know, don't be self-centered. Don't be self-absorbed. But I just think that the, the two words, skill acquisition for the longest time, that's what we called. We said it was the first group was early child development. Second one was skill acquisition. And the third group was tournament prep. And, mm-hmm. you know, you don't really get into the tournament prep until you're 14 years old. I mean, 13, 14, you really have to put the hours in. And in the past, we've actually marked that out and said, well, this is where you should be in 1,000 hour increments. The Russians, the rule of thumb was you're not going to play tennis until you have three hours of practice. And that's just, just the opposite of the USDA activity theme. It's not learn to play, it's play to learn. And let's make it not form-based, but let's make it game-based. Now, the coach mm-hmm. knows both. You can make it form-based and game-based, and in the end, you just put the two together, and it's principle-based. But um, why don't you take, yeah. say a few things about checkpoints and skill acquisition? Yeah, I mean, again, that uh, the way the great base has been assembled with, a combination of so many great teachers and the ideas that have been blended in order to allow really a parent to do our job if they wanted to, Um, you know, and, and maybe the parent isn't, you know, let's say the three legged stool calls for them to just be parent and, uh, you know, assistant, assistant coach, um, on the outskirts and, and that's the time they have. I mean, the checkpoints don't have to be 
uh, evaluated on, they, they can be evaluated right in, in a room like I am at right now in my house um, in front of a mirror in the evening, the routines, tying back into the routines and the checkpoints for the, the swings. I mean, from the ready position to the grips to the, uh, the unit turns and then the balance points at the end and um, using the word picture method to tie it all together. And, and, you know, I mean, you know how it is. I mean, neither of us got probably enough time with our kids growing up, but um, um, it'd be a way for a parent to actually spend a positive 15, 10, 15 minutes at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day with their child. And um, everybody would benefit from it, I think. I think journaling, you know, if the kids were just to write down three things per day, and even if it's repetitive, it's a repeat, uh, three things from the day, reflective thought. I think for the parent, the player sit down and say, okay, let's just take 10 minutes. How'd the day go? You know, that's something with society today. Uh, a lot of families aren't sitting down for dinner anymore. That's right. Mm-hmm. Just on the go, on the go. With uh, number 10. Number 10. This is an important one. Do remember that this is a game, a sport. Everyone won't play professionally, but everyone can enjoy tennis for a lifetime. Yeah. You know, to play professionally and make money at it. Uh, I say often that uh, I know you have as well. I've had a lot of kids have been number You've been in the top 10 in the NCAs, but they haven't played 10 WTA or 10 ATP matches. It's very, very yeah. difficult to make money in tennis. Um, with uh, Well, and I think we get asked all the time, I'm sure, you know, through our lifetimes, a parent will bring a child in and what do you think? Do they have potential? And, <laughs> and it's like, yeah. I mean, you know, how do you even answer that? And, um, but again, the, the, the beginnings, you know, we always, the right start, we always talk about it. And I think we equate it to the technique, you know, making sure that the technical skills, the foundation of the skills is the right start. But to, you know, in this day and time, it seems that the right start is a, a culmination of several things. And it's, it's trying to really mold the attitude of the, the, the support system, the, the parents and, and, and the environment they're in to, to try to give the kid a sport to get, you know, it, and, and the stats, you know, I think when you throw some stats out about the, the percentages of kids in high school ten, or playing tennis in America that play college tennis, and then the lower percentage that even goes on to play division one, I, I think, um, you know, I consider it a victory when I come to work every day and about three o'clock this, this guy who was, I call him the OG. He was the uh, original academy student when there was no academy here. And I, I, he, he was just, he was 18 years old when we started the program October 11th, 30 years ago. And, um, and he is out on that ball machine hitting every day at three o'clock. You know, he's successful in his life and has stayed a member of Brookhaven his whole life. And he, um, He's out there working. He still works with Dion once a week on his technique. And he still has, I mean, he, he makes Clayton Stanley's forehand grip look like Clayton, look like Clayton holding the Continental. And uh, the guy's so far under. I mean, he just never changed it. But, you know, he, he certainly, every other stroke looks apart. He's got great circles, squares up the volley. 
and he's getting close to 50, I think. And, uh, but, um, he's playing it for his lifetime and he, and he loves it. He's playing leagues and tournaments and, you know, he's still a good five Oh player. And, and, uh, to me, when I see people like that, that have graduated the programs over the years and they're still playing and enjoying the sport, I, I mean, to me, it's a victory for the sport of tennis. And, uh, and, and that's really what we all need to celebrate more. I think is what's good for the game. I think American tennis to have young players stay with the game. So many young players who play in college when they finish, if they don't want to play pro tennis and we've, we've lost out, you know, we used to have 21 and 21 and under 25 and over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we used to have ways for, and, and that was in place for the, and I think you could back and say, well, the UTR, a lot of local UTR tournaments that people can play. And that's a positive, but yeah, finding ways to get people to stay with the game and, you know, just a, a tennis pal, if you could have people play the game, come out, now, not everybody has to be a full paid professional to find a way to have people like that be a member of the staff and they just play sets. And yeah, there's, we got to keep people, we got to get new people in the game and we got to keep people in the game. We got to win on both sides, especially with, yeah. pick, especially with pickleball. Um, I think we've, talked mean, about, uh-huh. <laughs> we've talked about that many times on this podcast is that we as tennis People have to unite and say, "Okay, learn tennis, and then and have and play pickleball, but yeah. go out there and play like a tennis player." Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've noticed that my club they um, they've converted two courts into um, six pickleball courts, and the players that they like playing with the most are the tennis players because the tennis players raise the level and they bring the excitement and and they challenge they challenge uh, the other folks. So for sure, you know, do some tennis get better at it and and it'll stick with you even with the other sports once you you know pass it off and you go decide to do something else yeah yeah definitely coach anderson we probably should have flipped this around and and had the do's be first but now we got to do the don'ts uh (laughs) i remember doing a lot of do's and don'ts doubles clinics uh talk about mike carter um i used to uh just have to have one white towel one towel from the locker room and uh we do the do's and don'ts and the macho male ego and Carter would put the towel around his waist like he was the skirt. <sighs> and I said, you need to hide over there in the alley. And uh, yeah, so much fun from years gone by. Mm-hmm. Let's go with number one on the don'ts for back swings right. and mood swings by Dave Anderson. Nope, no, per- no particular order or no, no priority on the numbers. I just, uh, I'll, I'll read number one. Let me pull it up. Okay. Pretty impressive how you can use this phone, huh? Yeah. Number one, don't assume that because a program has high-level players that it is the best program for development. We kind of touched on that a little bit earlier. Oh, same. I mean, that's not only with juniors. You know, club tennis, is re- there's recruiting now, and academies is rec- there's recruiting. Um, college, a lot of college coaches. um <laughs> Assume, make an ass out of you and me. Don't, don't assume, yeah, because they have high-level players that it's a um, high-level program. It's amazing how many, how much recruiting goes on at the grassroots level. Um, you know, I remember uh, being told not to use the term beginner. Don't say beginner. Say new player. New player. New player. 
Yeah. Or grassroots, you know, you're so low, you're right down there with the snakes. I mean, you're just, you're on your belly. You're at the grass level. You're, you're just growing. Um, comments yeah. on that. Comments on number one. Well, I think it, it, I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. Um, in the sense of, again, people, people love a home run and they don't really get that excited about a bunt and, and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Boletari who certainly impacted tennis in, in amazing ways and did, did, did some very, very wise things in, in a Darwinian way where he put a bunch of kids together and it was kind of Lord of the flies. And, and, uh, but many of those people, as you referred to earlier, they were already well, well, well on their way to becoming, um, phenomenal players before entering Bradenton. And sometimes, um, it's hard to fight that, you know, because, uh, when, I think that immediately when, when we're in this society, it, it's just common. It's just, it's just the natural course for a parent to be ooing and eyeing over, uh, an elite level player who might be 15, who maybe even started at that particular program. And they were just one of those people who, you know, if you put a hundred in, you get one out. And I think what Braden said about evaluating the other facets of the program and the athletes of all sorts, not just the, the freak of nature who um, was going to find their way through the sport. I mean, that's why uh, some, some players like Shane, I mean, Shane Vincent was going to be good if I never bumped into him, I think. Um, he had holes, but he was still going to be good. And, uh, um, I think that, I think that when people go to, to evaluate where they want to put their child, they need to go for more than one day. And like you said, they need to, uh, possibly talk to, uh, um, parents of, uh, people that have since gone on from that environment that aren't currently a part of it, kind of like a recruiting trip to college where, um, you know, I mean, the kids aren't going to give a bad report. The current, the current players, if you go and travel to a particular university they're they've been briefed on how to typically how to respond to the people coming in. And some don't, but most do. And, and I think it's kind of the same with the junior program. I, I think that everybody puts on a little bit of a honeymoon uh, effect for, for any incoming visitors and, and uh, you don't get a true picture. So, some players, yeah. uh, some players are good despite the coach. Um, in college tennis, way to way to monitor, evaluate, investigate college tennis is: Are there any players that came in that were walk-ons that got a, even a, a, guaranteed, a guaranteed spot as a walk-on? Mm-hmm. Um, not not necessarily even guaranteed for four years, but they were they had a, the coach that's gone away from. Do, do college coaches have walk-on tournaments anymore? That used to be some pressure where player won a walk-on tournament just for what they say on a college campus, the normal students. Mm-hmm. They still say that. These are the courts for the normal students. Well, that means if you're on the varsity team, you're the abnormal. Right. But so you win the the college tryout 
And then if you play with the number 12 guy or number 12 gal on the tennis team, whatever the bottom rung of the ladder is, and the coach was generally smart enough to say, you got to play best of three matches. And if the walk-on wins two out of three, they're on the team and number 12's oh. adios. Yeah. Pressure. <laughs> that doesn't mm -hmm. really exist, but uh, – that's why I think, you know, talking about Jim Verdick, for example, I know you had time to spend, you spent time with Jim Verdick. He was mm -hmm. basically, Alex and listeners, what we had in the 80s, that was the the, group, the lab for the Great Base. We actually practiced, you know, a minimum of 15 hours a week teaching tennis. You mm -hmm. know, who, who does that? Nobody. I don't think it's been done since, really, where people, okay, Jim Lair comes in and we're gonna, he's giving us all these ideas and we're going to have a lab where we just practice implementing those ideas. Um, but yeah, I think that's something that, uh, doesn't take place is, you know, then I think, I think it's tough for the coach too. If the parents always jumping ship and they don't stay, they don't stick around long enough, you know, and I, I know coaches are serving apprenticeships and moving up the ladder. And if someone can stay someplace for 10 years, I mean, I was in Tyler, Texas for 10, I was in Tampa for 15, um, and if you you do that, uh, you know, you can start a kid who's in, he's eight years old, he's in the third grade. And, mm -hmm. you know, where is he when he's 18? And if people can have that stick to um, you know, I think some programs, they say, well, we will guarantee. Um, if, if someone just comes in and they do the right things for, for a 10-year period, nothing but good things are going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. But do, do people do that? Um, yeah, so... Let's go with uh, number two in the don'ts. Number two. Don't assume that teachers all understand teaching. Hmm. Most enter this career without any formal training. Yeah. Number well, two. Well, hats off to uh, Alex to be here for five weeks. Uh, you know, I was talking to Miron Mann, who's been a guest on our podcast, somebody I've known since he was 10 years old, I believe. And now I think he's 40. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds but about right. He, uh, you, you, you correct me, the fact checker, Andre Barthposo will call up Miran and say, are you 40? <laughs> and I need it. I need it. We need fact checking with, um, yeah, to come here for five weeks, uh, Alex and study, just immerse yourself in learning. Uh, you're really not going to get it done by going to a coaches, coaches convention. I was a junkie for those. I was, uh, one time I remember Braden, I was honored that he said that uh, I'd been to more of those than anybody. And at one time, maybe that was true. Um, you know, go listen to this coach for 60 minutes and that coach for 90 minutes. David's already said that you're, you're, you got to hang around to even evaluate a program. You, you can't do it. It's not a blink of an eye. It's, it's just a snapshot. You can't do it in one sitting, but understand teaching, teachings, information transfer. There's a brain drain. Unfortunately, in our profession, most people don't have technical knowledge. Yeah. yeah they're missing that. I mean, I was missing that. I, I, I thought that I could transfer the knowledge that I had from my playing skills into my teaching skills, you know, understand what I'm doing, try to re-imitate those things and get my students to do them. And it works to some extent, but eventually either I plateau in the knowledge and I just don't have enough information to progress any further. And it shows in, in my students, my students remain at the same level and they, 
you know, they don't know any better. So they just kind of keep going with it. And they're under that impression that it just takes that much longer. It just takes a long time to actually get to knowledge and get the skills better. And I myself was stuck in that loop. I was just going back, same drills, same stuff, preaching the same things till eventually someone called me out and said, you, you gotta, you gotta learn this stuff. You gotta understand what you were actually telling these people because you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And yeah, they might get better, but they're eventually going to stop and the learning's not going to, it's not, they're not going to progress anymore. So yeah, you certainly can masquerade as a tennis teacher. You can't masquerade, for example, as an accountant. Yeah. You can't go to the bank and go, well, yeah, the money's there. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty easy profession to BS, uh, to be a BS artist. I, I, in, you know, the program that you were in years ago, David, I would take the student and I would, I would debate the student. I, I would give the student uh, solid, rock solid information. They had the rationale based on scientific principles, logic. And then I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to say, no, you volley with a continental grip on the forehand side and your elbow in. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's so many people out there that have so much experience um, communicating and, you know, they're confident, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't really even know, you know, people ask me, what do you do? I fight English every day. They don't know. They don't know. And they're, they're giving out bad information. Yeah. Oh, you don't have time. This is what all the pros do. And Once someone says, this is what the pros do. And this is, it's just amazing how that happens. Um, with uh, having Jim Klein here, I looked at a Ryan Reedy two minute and he does a very good job. You know, he, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's, uh, acknowledged Jim, he's acknowledged me and, you know, he's, he's, I think it's great. He's carrying the Vic Braden flag, but he was not, you know, just like Jim, Jim was not trained by, by Vic Braden and either was Ryan. I mean, certainly a little bit of time, you know, some clinics, mm-hmm. especially Jim, um, mm-hmm. but you know, Jim would be very upfront, but no, it was, you know, a couple a weekend here and a weekend there. And, but he, Jim, he lived the information, but what Jim can do and his understudy Ryan can do is, um, you know, they're using Vandermeer progressions to teach, you know, braid methodology or the Van Horn balance method. Mm-hmm. You know, Andy Fitzell's one, to, you know, uh, he knows Vic backwards and forwards. And, you know, certainly he spent so much time with me now over the years that he, you know, he knows, you know, we always say, okay, Braden's a, a Christmas tree and we have all these ornaments. Um, but the, the teaching, it's not just the information. It's what's even more important is the application of the information. For sure. And, you know, that's where it's science and art. So it's not just, well, you know, just facts. It's like, okay, you know, how, how do you um, work a group with, you know, two people or 20 people or even even more? Yeah, I mean, also when you deliver the information – you as a teacher, you have to be aware. Is are my students absorbing this information in the right way? Are they are they going to be able to use it now and later when they go home and practice, or are they just going to do it here and then it's just going to fade away because it it wasn't concrete, it didn't stick. So, I do think with formal training on number two, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's Hope College in Michigan and it's right next to Ferris State, and I've heard people say, well, one program is cannibalizing the other. They're both very small. Um, and then there's Methodist, mm-hmm. USTAU, United States Tennis Association University program. 
Uh, there's a lot of good intention, and I still think you know they're fighting a good fight to try to make that happen. Um, but why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about formal training, David? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean I was lucky. You know, I was lucky that my friend was opening a magazine and uh, saw it and came down and you know bumped into you and asked you how I could make the tennis team. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but. Uh, Little did I know that was that was not going to be anything really pertinent to my future. And um, but you know, tennis tech, as we called it back when you ran it, I mean, it was it was a comprehensive two year program that just I mean, really turned people into uh, candidates. I would say to go on and be great tennis teachers. And I think that from from there, I, I mean, I, I, you and I have talked about it before. I mean, it ideally should have been a four-year program minimum. Um, but, you know, that was to me just, that was lap one, the, the formal training that we received there. And we received it in a, in a very, you know, heavy dose relative to, I think, how most people would receive formal training in this day and time. They don't have that means. And so even with that heavy dose of formal training, that really, I mean, maybe wasn't even a complete lap one really in terms of competency. Um, I think that just got you prepared to go out there and, and not embarrass yourself and at least not do damage to people in regard to getting them down the road in, in the sport of tennis. And, and I, I really believe that one of the biggest, you know, even people that um, are pursuing the curriculum, that you've laid out and put together. And, and I believe that one of the biggest mistakes made is people just don't teach enough. I think that people only teach when they get paid. And I think that teaching has to be done from sunrise to sunset for a long time, for years and years in order to get the ability to know when to implement information in a particular manner to, to make the best results. And, um, you know, I think of a tennis lesson that we observed you doing, Steve, years ago and uh, on the campus of Tyler and Mark Moss, his dad came in and, you know, I don't even know if he had held a racket before and you had agreed, I think, to do a lesson with him. Um, and we were all observing a hundred of us and I think I might've been on staff and it was the same thing either way, but, um, you know, and you just took them out and you just worked on palm guidance. I mean, it wasn't really even making a circle or a letter C or anything. It was just trying to get the guy to get his palm behind the racket and just, you know, get it square and move the hand to the target a little bit. And, you know, I think that everybody was expecting that you were going to stop him and work on making a pivot and a unit turn and all that. But that kind of experience that you already had way beyond what we could gather was why you did what you did in that. And, and, I think that pros need to teach. <laughs> We're tennis teaching professionals and coaches, and and you won't get there. You just you will fall short of your uh, individual best in your career in your in your journey as a teacher if you don't live on a tennis court teaching. And 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 if you're waiting to get paid for every lesson you teach, you're never going to get there. And um, that's just in, in my. I mean, I I really believe that with my whole heart. And. Uh, I think that uh, the more you teach, the better you get. The better you get at it, the more fun it is. And 
And then, you know, eventually you'll have people lined up at the door and you'll become a Pied Piper in a different way. And, and, uh, um, I just think, uh, the, the whole, I, I, you know, to me, tennis teaching is, I mean, it's a passion and, and figuring it all out. And, you know, I'm getting a little better at it every day. And, and, uh, but I think that the starting point is, is certainly what we had with the formal training there. And I think you've improved it and even bottled it up with some other things since then. And, and, uh, um, it's there for everybody to pick. I I do think that, I do think that and understandably so that many people have to just carry the briefcase. You know, they're, Mm -hmm. they put themselves in a position where maybe they own a facility or they're just managing so many pros but people can still find time not to remove themselves totally away from the tennis teaching side of things. Um, but I think with formal education, you know, again, I've said it many times in this podcast, but by the age of 26, I've been trained to teach tennis by Vic Braden, Dennis Vandermeer and Welby Van Horn. And certainly we have a number of pillars in our course, tennis is intelligence supply. I mentioned over a hundred coaches and, you know, you're, if you're, you're a lifelong learner, you're learning all the time and you, you learn from your experiences, you learn from your students and it's just, it's just nonstop. But with that, you know, you, people have to go back to the well. Uh, the people that I've worked with that have developed players are the ones that in their own way, I mean, you know, these podcasts certainly help, uh, the content we have online, but, um, they send they send their players to work with us. They send their assistant coaches to work with us, and um, you know it's not it's continued education. It's not like well, okay, I did that program and then I and I just move on. Um, with the same thing with a player, you know, with uh, a player never outgrows working on a fundamental review, right. Yeah, I grew up in ice hockey and you watch an ice hockey team warm up now and they're, they're just doing the, doing the same drills and warm up that they did when they were peewees. Yeah. And, you know, basketball teams, the same thing, mm-hmm. it's, you know, but for, for some reason in tennis, uh, I think we miss that. Uh, but I do mm-hmm. think the formal training, uh, you know, I just think like say the, the player development manually you have and mm-hmm. you know, have players, have people come in and uh, I've always said that, you know, I've met so many of your pros and, you know, just in one way or the other, whether we, I send somebody out there as a player or someone out there to coach and, and the people say, well, you, no one can work like Dave. And I would just kind of laugh. I go, what do you mean? No one can work like Dave. He says, sure you can. You know, you just, sun comes up, you get up and you just put the hours in. And if you're not giving a lesson, I can't tell you how many times I've told people, just go sit on his court. And uh, with the renovations, do you still have that snack bar across the street? <laughs> yeah 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 so that's that's not where you want to hang yeah out. that's not where you want to hang out no no we've made progress with that change the culture of that a little bit and uh in a positive way um yeah but a lot's changed there i mean you'll see it it uh it's some of it's going to give us a better opportunity to to help kind of breed that student of the game attitude from coaches and players i think let's go with number three i like number three I like all these, but number three just jumps out like, okay, I like this one. Go ahead. All right. Let me take a peek. Number three. Number three. Looking for number three. There it is. Don't 
do not join the tournament ranking rat race. Even if you win it, you're still a rat. <laughs> <laughs> a rat. The, uh, uh, it's just amazing. I've had some kids here recently that are, you, you know, they're seniors and, you know, one of them is going to take another year and, um, you know, they have holes in their game, but they, they just cannot not play tournaments. And it takes some time off for the tournaments. Um, and, you know, I think with what Alex read off with the division one tennis, I mean, if you're a 10.7 and you say, I want to play at such and such school, um, it's you know I'm talking about the boys the teen yeah. the teenage mm-hmm. how's it go the the teenage boy the most unmanageable animal of them all I used to be one of them but uh, mm-hmm. tell us a little about your thoughts on the rat race the ranking rat race I think it it's a uh, I think that again to take a little of the heat off the parents um, I think the system changing over my lifetime in the sport has made it uh, too tempting for people to, to join the rat race. Um, you could argue right now it's almost made it uh, critical that they do join the rat race. And, it, you know, from, from an, uh, a truly uneducated perspective. And, and I think that the governing body of tennis in general has uh, hurt the game in that way. And, uh, I think there, um, if there isn't some changes, you know, in in this uh, system that uh, that that we're going to continue to feel it. Um, I think that it's just too strong a temptation for people, and you know, you might get an occasional outlier, two out of ten maybe on a good year, but I think for most people, they're just it's like saying you're going on a diet and. Uh, you know, you go to eat at CC's buffet. I don't know if they have them where you are, but yeah, yeah. And you yeah. say you're gonna, you're only gonna go eat salad. And I think that's what, you know, that's what the temptation is for these people. They just can't do it. I used to, you know, I was in Tampa. I had a place that was not too far from CC's buffet. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. With, uh, of course, you know, I was working with people putting some hours in, and they could burn those carbs, but. Uh, with yeah the utr there's some positives to the utr but people are just obsessed with it you know what's your utr and i ask people okay what's your utr at the track what's your utr in the gym mile time what's your utr you know the library what's your utr (laughs) with fruits and vegetables what's your utr and people don't get it they just don't get it and um and also, too, that there's just so many people that overanalyze it. If you're playing number six on a Division One college tennis team, one of the Power Five schools, that's a really good tennis player. Mm-hmm. And but they're playing the other number sixes, and then so they don't really have a chance to improve their UTR. And you know, some parents overanalyze that. Well, this team, this team's not really this college team. Their UTR is not. Just go read a book. You know, just go. Th- making paper airplane. I mean, they're just overanalyzing it. And, uh, we yeah, have, in most cases they need to go for a run. Yeah. <laughs> with, with, uh, but no, that's, that's a good one. Let's go to number four. Number four coming up. 
Number four. Oh, searching for number four. Don't Got worry. It. Don't worry about scoreboard results. Utilize stats and video to document progress. Yeah, I know that was yeah. a line of yours for so many times. Is don't let the scoreboard regulate your emotions. Maybe that was my line. Maybe we, maybe you and I stole. That was your, that was actually your line that I stole oh. from you, but oh, okay. you forgot that I stole it. So I'm going to claim it. All right. I, I first heard you say that when we visited you in Tampa at Hillsborough Community College, and I brought that group of about twenty down there, and one of them was Max Stevens. Oh boy! And he played against. Uh, he was playing against McHale. Because uh, I think Connor would have probably beat him then, but Connor, for some reason, wanted to follow me around because I think he was eight or nine, and he realized I drank a lot of soda, and he was <laughs> thinking he could. He was he was just like I think I was shifting him Mountain Dew through that whole week we were there. But uh, what was the name? Yeah, Mikhail. Go ahead. Huh? Go ahead. Go ahead what? Mikhail. Go ahead with Mikhail. Oh, I, yeah, and I remember Max and uh, Mikhail. Yeah, playing out there, and Max still had a two-handed forehand at the time, and, you know, McHale beat him, and, you know, Max was just, I mean, they were regular, they both were regulated by the scoreboard, McHale was, in my opinion, way better skilled then, and, and uh, but that's when I really first remember you saying to Max, you're just, you should just be regulated by the scoreboard, and he was, and, and he remained that way for many years. Yeah, McHale had... He had the opportunity to work with Braden many times. He could volley, but uh, you know, he just figured out, well, if I go to the net, they could pass me and lob me. But uh, I remember Kayvon Karimi. Uh, yeah. he, I think, you know, Mikhail was like one in the 10s in Florida, and Kayvon was one in the 12s, and they played a match. And Kayvon's father helped me out. His name is Q, right? Q Karimi, yeah. And uh, so Connor has, you know, airplane goes over and he's going to lose three games and so many fun stories with connor one time he uh the umpire kept talking to him i said what was the umpire on to you about he said well he, he told me i had to put one of the one ball in my pocket and uh i said well, why didn't you do it he said i put my pants on backwards <laughs> another, another time during a changeover i said connor why don't you just throw up some moon balls he looked at me he said is the moon made of cheese i said connor just play any way you want and mm -hmm. um but with uh I remember telling Q as I said, well, actually, the way both these boys are playing, um, that um, you know, they both would beat Connor quite easily right now, but Connor's playing much better tennis than they are because he's having some fun. He's coming to the net and he's trying to hit a volley, trying to hit an overhead. Poor Kayvon, I remember uh you went to Texas AM and mm -hmm. cracked the lineup as a freshman, but uh he struggled. He didn't he didn't win too many matches and uh Steve Denton sent him to me, uh, you know, so you you really don't want to be playing uh, at Texas A&M and have to be sent back to work on your technique, but he would just hit forehands from everywhere. And, um, but yeah, obviously he was a very good tennis player to get to that level, but um, yeah, the rankings, I like the idea. Um, I think we said that on a podcast not too long ago, Andy Fitzsell's working with JJ Wolf and I don't know where JJ got the line, maybe Ty Tucker, but there's only one type of point, WTA point or an ATP point. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, the ranking with, you know, there's so many great lines, you know, you won't find pro tennis, pro tennis will find you. Um, your, your game will get you ranking points, but your ranking points won't get you game. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's go to the next one. Big Dave Anderson, Minot, North Dakota, the guy with a good looking blonde hair. 
Number five, don't undermine the efforts of coaches. It never has a positive result. We lost you there for a minute. I thought maybe you got your hair in your eyes or something. Yeah. Read, I didn't. Read number five again. Don't don't undermine the efforts of coaches. This never has a positive result. Do you get me that time? Yeah, 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 yeah I heard you. What do you think, <laughs> uh, Alex? That makes sense to you? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you guys mentioned it earlier. Parents, you know, they hear things, they see things, and they, 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 in a sense, lose faith in the coach, or they think the coach is not trained well enough, or they don't know what is right for the kid, and they, they bounce. A lot of them, I find, just say when they want to get out and they want to do it the nice way, they just say, "Oh, you know." my kid just doesn't hear you the same anymore. You know, just, you just become another voice in the crowd. They don't, they don't hear you anymore. So we need a different voice. So you hear that in pro sports. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they kind of take off in that sense. And, and I feel like that is a way to like undermine what, what you're doing. Like you weren't, you were good to some extent, but now my kid's better and you just simply can't do it anymore. So adios. Well, I, I, tell, I think kids, uh, really good kids, uh, you know, their parents are just noise, you know, turn the lights off. Mm-hmm. You know, put your dirty clothes in the hamper, whatever it is, over and over again, wipe off the kitchen counter. And years ago, when you just give a, a one-hour weekly private, I think that you got more attention, more focus from mm-hmm. the students. But that's the thing about having a staff, having a culture. The 18 should pull the 16, 16 should pull the 14s, and it should be the process. And then if you're clever, um, I mean, if you have the, a deep program, everybody can help everybody. You create that culture, that community. But no, people can like, okay, I, I got to hear it from somebody else, but they, they don't need to hear, hear something different. You know, they can hear the same thing. But, mm-hmm. And that's what's interesting about having a staff of different personalities. But if, you know, personality is going to come into it, but, you know, common denominators, are there, um, is there rhyme and reason for what people are doing out there? Yeah. And and I just want to yeah. say one other thing, like what Dave said, you know, he's got a lot of coaches and sometimes you don't have to leave the program. You maybe want to work with a different coach and, and that's fine. You speak with the director of the, of the facility and we can put you with someone else as long as, you know, we are working on the same things and we're preaching the same story and different voice uh, might uh, change the outcome and might help out as well. So no need to just abandon the coach and the program, give, give somebody else a shot as long as it's in the same building. Yeah, and I think the flip side, you know, the flip side too. Yeah, just exactly what you said. I think sometimes coaches fall asleep at the wheel, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it. I mean, it's we're putting some of this tonight in from the parents end and 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 the players certainly, but you know, the coaches got to stay alert, and focused, and and uh, everything we're asking out of the the kids and the parents. I mean, everybody's got to be dialed in, and and uh, and and you know, with parents undermining coaches i've i've seen problems arise because um really inappropriately i think that i've seen coaches address things with kids 12 13 year old kids that are kind of derogatory towards the parent um that really you know if you want to say that one-on-one with the parent directly to them i think it's appropriate but Mm -hmm. um so you know everything has a flip side to it a little bit but i've seen a lot of journeys disrupted just because there's too many questions. There's too much questioning. And the questioning really in my, my years of doing it is everybody's trying to rationalize to try to get out of doing work. 
(laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's just, you know, and so your mind takes over and we're comfort zoners by nature and and everybody's just kind of, you know, trying to find something to, you know, a shortcut, I guess you could say, but it's just, it's hard work. Sport's hard. I don't know when every sport's hard to, to get pretty good at it. And, I don't know when that became such a difficult thing for people to remember it. Um, you know, to have people tell me now that, you know, that it's not good to run. I mean, I'm like, I, I ran my whole life in all my sports sprints, carrying people on your back. I mean, I didn't have to see, I didn't see massage therapists or any of that. And, and uh, you know, it, it's just mind boggling. I, I use that word a lot lately because I, I just can't, really stomach the direction and the softness in the culture. Um, and I think, and, I think the U- the, yeah, the U S culture, the, um, you know, up here in the mountains, there's 16 clay courts, but four of them are at the bottom of the mountain. But so up here we have 12 clay courts, three indoor courts. Mm-hmm. There's uh eight pickleball courts that, uh, you know, we have only used one time. Uh, there's, there's so much court availability up here. But, you know, the mistake we've made is, hey, you need to have a pair of shoes for the clay and a pair of shoes for the hard, but also bring a pair of running shoes. Um, you know, the European kids, uh, they just, they run and run some more. With, yeah. um, you know, these it were so well written. I just have to digress here a little bit. Uh, your longtime, uh, you know, childhood friend, Fred Vorman, did he help you with this? <laughs> Did he write this list um, out and send it to you? No, I used AI. <laughs> AI makes everybody look smart. <laughs> I had a guy show me how, I had a guy, Coach Andreas showed me something. I said, I need this one document. He goes, tell me what you need in it. <laughs> and then he, and I said a few things and he kicked out this document from just AI. And I was like, what? What just happened? I don't know. I think I, we might be, I mean, I don't know where it's all going. It's way above me, but uh, yeah, AI definitely uh, interesting. No, that was, uh, that's, that's my ADHD when I can't sleep at night. All right. Writing on my, writing notes on my phone. I like the next one again. Let's go six. Number six. Takes me longer to find them than it does to write them. Number six. Can you hear me? Yeah, of course. All right. Don't compare your child's journey to others. Their process may be slower or faster, but each has a unique story. I see this error a lot. Yeah, especially even within a family. A sibling rivalry, rivalry is healthy, but at the same time, just keep on keeping on. Is it the, the Bob Dylan song? Is, yeah, you know the, the the competition's in the mirror. Don't worry about what the Joneses are doing. Just put your head down and go. Uh, that's very well put. You sure Freddie didn't write that? <laughs> Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan lived in Fargo. I just found that out. Fargo, North Dakota. Can't I couldn't believe it. I, I had no knowledge of that until the other day. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. probably because he was far out. That's what he wasn't from Fargo. He was just from far out. Well, you. Yeah, he was from, uh, I think he lived in uh, Duluth. That's where he grew up, Minnesota. And spent a little time in Fargo. Bob Dylan. No wonder he's saying that but, way. Uh, he, was, he was frozen. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't open his mouth. Yeah. yeah it, uh, no, it, I think that, I think you got to give people space, you know, to grow. I think it's hard when you have a sibling who's uh, um, shining and, you know, sometimes you just, 
get their branches out of the way and and you're able to grow a little bit and uh but also just uh i mean it it's amazing to me the off factor that people have and you said it earlier smartest parent is the one of the kid who just won the tournament you know i've said for years that you go to a national and it's the number one seed is eating yogurt on a changeover. Every parent's make going back across the country <laughs> at the end of the tournament and making their coach eat, make their child eat yogurt on a changeover. Um, it's just nonsense. There, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And, um, everybody has a great story in them, and and, and uh, you know we just can't stifle it. We can't let it, you know, stay in. We just got to bring it out, and and um, everybody's got a DK Pearson story. Yeah, I tell you that story again, DK Pearson. But here, just one word. I went to this one academy for years, training the coaches, and they had fifty key words, and periodically they would change a word. That was a you know, great segment of their of their philosophy. But the word frozen, you know, Sampras has that in his book. Is that some people don't choke; they just they're they're frozen. They just if you're choking, you're in there. You just miss the shot. Right, some right. some people they just they mm-hmm. can't they can't even get the ball out of your hand, but. David being from Minot, North Dakota, my father told told a story about his grandfather. There was a horse they had and the horse was out and, you know, you know, 20, 30 degrees below zero. And they finally get the horse in. And uh, my father's father goes in the house and he gets a bottle of whiskey, a full <laughs> bottle of whiskey. Uh-huh. And they get the horse and they pull the whisk, they pour the whiskey down the horse's throat. Right. And next thing you know, the horse is, shake it and <laughs> blowing stuff out the out, out its ears out its nose and the horse survived and actually one of the water survivors only six water survivors on the titanic and uh one of them what's his name williams richard williams okay you know not the richard williams of of today but richard williams and they wanted to amputate his legs but they asked him how he survived and he, when he knew the ship was going down he said he ate as much food and drank as much booze as he could. Anyway, back to number seven. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered what my dad's secret was. <laughs> number seven. Coming. It may not be as good as number six. Let's see. Number seven. Use it. Don't, right. don't assume. You like that. Don't assume. Don't assume. Don't assume your child will outgrow the need for fundamentals. It never happens. Yeah. Roger, yeah. Roger Fetter, go back to basics. You know, some people, they, they quit. If they quit tennis, I say, ah, it's, you know, you're not really quitting. You never started, <laughs> you know, burnout, you know, kids don't burn out. You have to catch on fire to burn out. It's not burnout. It's frustration factor. Yeah. You know, kids have so many holes in their game. If there's a hole in the boat, uh, you don't put the sail up. You got to fix the hole in the boat. Um, yeah, I, I think others, that's where the other sports background really hurts people too. I mean, it, if you played on any other, you know, types of, I mean, you played high level of, of, of ice hockey and um, whether it's that or basketball, I mean, it's just every practice. I mean, we, we didn't just scrimmage, you know, you, you just, <laughs> you walked the ball down and you, you made a, a pass to, and you went over and you set a screen and you'd roll out. And, and I mean, it was just over and over from, you know, third grade all the way up to your senior year. And, and they do the same thing once you get to college. And I mean, it's just over and over emphasizing getting better and better at skills. I think the word fundamental in our society is, isn't sexy enough anymore for people. I think that 
it, 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 the connotation in their brain, it sends a message that it's beginner and, um, and they don't, uh, embrace it like they should where, you know, it's really, and that's why I like skill acquisition. I mean, it's just, that's all it is. It, it is fundamentals. And the, the, the great athletes have no problem saying the word fundamentals, but people that are in the middle stages seem to, to, to shy away from that word for some reason. I've always said, okay, tennis teachers, let's agree that we need to have a form tournament. These are the body, this is the body balance positions. These are the checkpoints and then have a target tournament. And, um, I have a young player here from Montreal and I said, all right, I'll play you today. And I just, they have to serve. If they get to serve in, then I feed them six balls and they have to go through the, the version of the tiebreaker test. So they got hit. A, and then and I can do it where I just, what, what I was doing with him is just courtesy feed 30 miles per hour, predictable, and just have to get the ball over the service line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, well, you know, I've been doing that drill for a long time. And I said, not too long ago, I did it with Mackenzie McDonald, who's a, obviously people know, I think he's been top 50 in the world. Man, and that guy's got a big set of calves. And it, during the pandemic, through Matt Clore, who's done a lot of things with this. So Mackenzie McDonald's at our place for three weeks. And I said, okay, McDonald, you and me, I'll beat you. <laughs> and I can crank a feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most people never see me feed a ball because I'm not working with people who can hit a ball. I got to teach them to hit a ball before I feed a ball. (laughs) We're going to toss and tap and double hit. So anyway, I got ahead of them. I was cranking it and I was doing my best imitation of Mr. Hopman, Robert Lansdorp. That guy can play, you know? So, okay. He made him not have the best serve in the world, but he's getting the serve in. Mm -hmm. And we can do it where, okay, your serve's got to hit the fence. Then if it doesn't, you don't get the serve in, it doesn't hit the fence three feet up, I'm up, I'm up 15 love. Right. And, you know, he adjusted to my feet. He had a huge smile on his face. It's, uh, we, we lost the court, but uh, he won. And in the second set, I thought my arm was going to fall off. I, <laughs> I was just cranking these balls. Um, but I got the, the, player's, the player's attention. I was sharing the other day. I said, yeah, I've done, I, recently I, I did this with Mackenzie McDonald. And I'm just cranking the ball. And, uh, you know, he had to adjust a little bit, but, you know, um, you know, he was, he had a lot of fun winning because I mean, I was just ripping ball to one corner, ripping ball to the other corner. And if anybody watches him play, he runs like a gazelle. Oh, yeah. he, he can do mm-hmm. that. He can do that corner to corner. He's faster than fast. Mm-hmm. But then when you people, when people come in and they say, okay, I'm going to just rip a ball and they got to square that volley up and, mm-hmm. you know, they've got to keep it in the court. But uh, anyway, number eight, let's number go eight. On. He was fundamentally sound to right. win that drill. Number eight. Don't negotiate with your child on practice. Kids are clever manipulators and will play parents like a violin. Yeah, for sure. We talked about people listening to our podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time, go back and listen to one on the Myers-Briggs personality test and all the work John Neednagel's done. I did that with Andy Fitzell. And opposites attract. You know, the extrovert marries the introvert mm-hmm. and you know, my parents, my mother was a ENFP, father was an ISTJ. And, you know, I can remember like cowboys who used to want to sleep outside and would always ask my father and he'd say, okay. And then finally he got the word that I had to ask my mother. And then, you know, she would just ask like where, who with, you know, mm-hmm. and 
Uh, but kids, yeah, they parents should never, it's a strong word, never disagree in front of their kid. They can disagree, but let the kid go to bed, then disagree. Because the kids mm-hmm. will the kids will hear both and they be it's like it's like ping pong. The mom says this, the dad says this, it's back and forth. Like the ping pong back all back and forth. And yeah, the kid becomes the master manipulator. They work one against the other. The violin. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the other another line for that is, you know, the the tail's wagging the dog. Like who's in charge here? I have no problem. I mean, I'm old enough. I mean, I was a volunteer tennis coach in the summer of seventy three. So my math tells me, right, I've been doing this for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, when, I work, when I work with a kid, I mean, the, the parent, they need as much training as the kid. And they don't, a lot of times they don't think that. Braden used to say, if, if somebody is working for a corporation, if they're in charge of a lot of people, it's going to be so hard to teach that person uh, because, you know, they just think that, you know, they know because they're in a leadership or a management or a combination leadership management position. What do you guys have to say about that? Number eight, play the violin, baby. Go ahead, Al. Um, I'll let you go first. You go. Well, I mean, I raised two of them and I'm raising two more in my grandparents or grandkids now. And, uh, I mean, they, they, they just, you know, kids, work ethic is going to be formed through moments like that and their character. When we talked about character development, and um, I don't know where my youngest daughter got it from, but I mean, when she says no, it's no. And, you know, she's five foot one and maybe 105 pounds, but um, she's a thousand times stronger than I ever was for sure. And, uh, you know, I've watched her, they, 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 our grandkids, that we live here with they're they're limited on screen i mean they and you know they uh the little one who's got a temper on him i mean he'll he'll kick and try to negotiate with her on that kind of stuff and it's just no and then she'll let it go for a while and then she'll say i'm going to set the timer for two minutes and if you're still doing this at the end of the timer you know there's trouble Mm -hmm. and you know he stops and, and so I, I think that to me, when I, when I think about the practice, I'm not talking about nothing, just going to practice for kids to take a private lesson and not follow up on their own, not have the routines at home. I mean, you may as well just take the money and throw it into the, you know, into the fire because it's a, it's a waste. And, uh, I think that, you know, again, I, you know, that three-legged stool is important. I mean, it's not a two-legged stool usually. It's not the player and the coach. It's It's got to be the three-legged stool and that there's got to be, uh, you know, I hope that some of the parents listening realize they have a huge role here, not just in the development of the, the tennis from, from helping us get their kids down the line in that sport, but from the character development. Because without character, and Steve, you told me this, I don't know, 1985, you, you didn't tell me directly. I think it was to a group of, hundred coaches, but if you can't teach character, you can't really develop tennis players. And, uh, so, you know, it, it, it's a unified approach for sure. And probably more so in this day and time than it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. Well, that's one great thing about your daughter is that, uh, if people make a study of successful tennis players, the boys, it's ideal if their mom is the force. 
And it's ideal with girls if the boy is the force. The dad, you mean? The dad, dad. Thanks, thanks. That's 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 a senior moment right there. That's that. That's why you're here. Okay, you got to keep me on track. That's where. Where's Andy Fitzell? Yeah, that's that's (laughs) why the fact checker. uh, I make lots of mistakes with uh, Roger Federer. Roger Federer's Fredo's mother. If you just read about like the the time he bleached his hair blonde, and the mother thought he was making. Um, you know, spectacle himself and drawing too much attention, and you had wore his hat way down. And I mean, those are the stories I like. The I like the backstories about character. I mean, the Federer story mm-hmm. that comes to my mind, where and people who've followed our podcast have heard it, but it's good to hear it again. Where you know, made fun of the kid, the girl, the girl who couldn't speak, uh, a Turkish girl in Switzerland who couldn't speak Swiss German. And he made fun of her. He had to apologize to her in Turkish, in writing, and orally. <laughs> So, you know, there's a reason. And the, and the parents talk, they, you know, the, the, you read about when the, he was younger and, you know, he didn't handle himself too well. And, you know, the long car rides home is that the mother and father, they, you've, they've got to be on the same page. Uh, here's something uh, old school, new school. Another way to say that is good cop, bad cop. Right. Old school, mm-hmm. old school is really bad cop. That's right. We're, 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 you're, we're going to do what you you don't want to do. I tell parents all the time, you know, don't be your kid's buddy. I mean, you don't have to be over the top and such, but it's like, no, this is business. I mean, you, what you said, you want to be a tennis player and this is what's going into it. Buck up, shut up, put up and let's go. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Let's go on to number nine. Number nine. Don't think that multi-sporting or late start are negative factors. You know, it kind of ties in with one of the do's earlier. Um, I just think uh, <laughs> even my, you know, the good athletes that you know you see come through tennis, they're 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 lacking some diversity in their in their skill sets uh, athletically. I think that only comes through multi-sporting. And uh, I, I I'm personally, you know, I know you are too, a big believer. I mean, I, I've heard you say a million times that. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that really helps a young boy become a better athlete is playing a helmet sport. There's something about, you know, the, the thought of getting hit by a baseball or um, getting knocked over in football and and uh, contact sports to me um, are unique in that way. I, I believe they really help. And um, you know, I told told a group of uh, parents yesterday. I said I it was about six kids, and I said I think that. It'd be a great exercise for you guys just to go to one of the inner city boxing clubs and, you know, during this perceived off season, you know, spend a couple of months learning that skill and, and learn to spar. Um, there's something good that comes out of it. And late starts to me, I think everybody, I think that's a very, I mean, obviously an early start, it's like investing. I mean, put it in and it builds over time, but um, I don't think late start has to be the doom and gloom that people that people think um, there's there's room for everybody to play this to play the sport and and uh, you know oftentimes that late start athlete makes the greatest stories I think from a coaching standpoint. I've uh, hired boxers before. I've taken kids to the gym to watch boxers. I know when we ran this program, where you formal training for tennis coaches, it would be uh, watching movies, and there was one for wrestling. 
And I, I know Craig Tiley, when he was at Illinois, he did this, but he got the idea from the movie that we assigned all the tennis tech students. So he took the tennis team and wrestling's really been beat up with his title nine non-revenue mm-hmm. male sport. A lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of these schools uh, have dropped wrestling, but the, so the tennis team, they're on their knees and they're, you know, up at attention, but on their knees and their arms are behind their back. And the wrestling coach just said to him, one of you guys talk or one of you guys just smirk. You're out here on the mat mm-hmm. and we're going to make it hurt. <laughs> and that's, they're just in there. Why, you know, just for tennis kids, just to be around other sports, um, you know, going up. That was vision, vision quest. There you go. There you, go. Mm-hmm. you were a good student, Anderson vision quest. You must got an A in that, on, was, that, uh, on, that, on that paper. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Modine was in that. That was a great movie. Vision Quest. Anderson can remember not only the score of a match, but what court they played on. Wow. Typically, I can, except the except the matches I've lost. I have a very good memory, but I, that's something that just uh, I don't I don't have a handle on that. But I, I do uh, remember many many things. Uh, mm-hmm. With um, no, for sure. It's just going to take more time. You just have to, if you have a late start, most kids do have a late start and a bad start. You just have to have a healthy work ethic. Either mm-hmm. you, you're either a one or a two. Ones are all in. You mm-hmm. say you want to be a tennis player, you can be a tennis player. You know, being a hard worker is just a choice. It's just, it's just a choice. With um, Yeah. Okay, we're at 10? Mm-hmm. Number 10, the finale. It's like David Letterman, top gonna 10. Say, I was going to say, David Letterman, good. Read my mind. Not, not difficult to I mean, do. This is, you know, I have mixed feelings on this one in terms of how, but uh, don't hold the financial aspects over your child. It's important they realize the sacrifices, but that they not be held hostage. Um, I think they have to be aware of it, but yeah. I don't think that uh, I don't think that it can be something that is uh, constantly thrown in their face. No, I think it's much better if the coach says, "Hey." The kid, hey, you got to be a giver, not a taker. You're never going to be able to pay your parents back for what they're doing for you unless you just become a great kid with a great attitude and a great work ethic. I mean, you mm-hmm. are you are a great kid if you have the, the great work ethic and the great attitude. Um, but and there's no on, on the flip side of that for their parents, there's no return on the investment. Right. You know, yeah. ten, tennis is the vehicle that you've chosen. There's extracurricular pursuits. And, you know, not everybody has to say, okay, I want to, you know, you know, be the best I can be. I want to play uh, tournament tennis. I'd like to play in college. I'd like to play beyond. But the coaches should all teach safe tennis. Mm-hmm. They should teach safe tennis. In other words, we're teaching tennis in a manner where prevention of injury. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, when you could comment on Chad Clark, I know Jennifer Roberts started him out, but you did the bulk of the work and he became a very, very good player. It's too bad that, Pro tennis just wasn't for him. I remember being in Canada and he was with me in Canada and, you know, he, he didn't even play like a full year. And um, uh, why don't you comment on that for a minute, Chad Clark? Well, I mean, he he's still in the city here. Um, he was a young guy that uh, I think was all in as a junior tennis player. I think looking back at it, I, I mean, I was like, I was just cutting my teeth as a coach. And, uh, um, for a kid like him coming from a small area in East Texas, it would have been really important for a guy like that to, to actually learn to travel at a younger age to, so he could have learned to travel well. 
at a young age and get, get more exposure, not for the reasons that most people do it. But I think that's ultimately, he was, he was such a homebody that I don't think the tour at that, I think it just didn't appeal to him much because of that. Well, then also, um, also too, is that, you know, he went to Texas and yeah, you know, Austin is Austin. Everybody loves Austin. And, you know, he based himself in Austin and, you know, he's off the tour and he's hitting golf balls with guys he played college tennis with. And he hired somebody who wasn't much older than him initially, but, but he was a recreational player. His mother said, Hey, I want you to do something a little bit more than baseball. I mean, Jim Courier, uh, they're yep. both, both redheads and, uh, Jim Courier, um, was a baseball player and, but you know, he's, the story goes, I think he was number two in Florida in the 12. He goes, well, I knew I wasn't the second best baseball player. Mm-hmm. And most people do end up choosing the sport that they're best at, but someone can start in recreational tennis that if they're, if they're taught really well, uh, it's so many things. If someone's taught to hit a two handed backhand really well, it's not that difficult to convert to a one hander. If they have the right mm-hmm. grip, right swing, right fundamentals. Um, you know, Pete Sampras or Stefan Edberg were like that, where two-handers became one-handers. And, um, but, yeah, that recreational tennis. Um, let's go over to 10 one more time because there's going to be a quiz, Alex, and you're going to have to take the quiz. Only the, only the young guys have to take quiz. Old okay. guys like Anderson and I, we okay. don't have to take the quiz. Okay, fair enough. Number 10 one more time? Yeah, yeah. it's, it's got to go. Don't down. hold the financial aspects over your child. It's important they realize the sacrifices but not be held hostage. I do yeah. think that it's gone away where uh, kids used to uh, work part-time jobs. And, you know, I think the serious tennis player, the, the parents should get a stringing machine and uh, they try to, the parents, the, the kid needs to be able to help out. Um, you know, can the kid pack a lunch and, um, you know, can they, the kid help reduce costs? Um, there's, there's ways to do that. Maybe it's, maybe it's nominal, but it's, but the thing is that the, um, you know, let's cut corners here. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's pack our lunch instead of going out to lunch. I mean, most tennis kids, from my experience, they go out to lunch every day. <laughs> I mean, the homeschoolers, yeah. it's like, yeah, let's just charge lunch. It's just $10 yeah. lunch or, you know, now it's more like 15. Um, I know some yeah, kids, amazing, uh, isn't it? some kids, Chipotle is their middle name. Yeah. Chipotle. Oh, DK Pearson. <laughs> you mentioned DK Pearson very quickly. Yeah. Politics. Uh, um, Went to Tyler Junior College. I was in, you know, I went and I was in charge of the, the curriculum. It had to be revised. And um, it was just because of the board, the president of the board of trustees. And I didn't even realize that at the time. Um, he made it happen. He was the, the boss of the boss. So, um, you know, the coach, and there's three coaches when I was there. The coach at one time, one of those three coaches said, hey, if you're in the tennis tech program, you can't be on the team. Mm-hmm. So a kid came from Illinois and uh, really wanted to be a tennis player, and he's there. And he, he wasn't even didn't even get a tryout. And uh, I said, "Well, you stay here one semester. You could transfer, but what you could do, you came here to learn how to teach tennis. You could stay here and just work on your game." And he didn't get didn't get an opportunity to play on the team. Mm-hmm. So he just stayed there and trained. Then he got better. Then he got better. At one time, the coach made the mistake of. The team traveled and he asked me if I could put together a tennis tech team to play the second six. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I knew how everybody at the ball, everybody on campus hit, hit the ball. You know, I mean, I hear from Mike Custer. He was part of that. I said, okay, guys in here, we just I came in, I raced the board, I go, we got a match. 
And I said, this is what you were going to do. And I didn't match the players up. And we played nine matches and won all nine matches. And so anyway, what happened, it was uh, Peter Dixon. Is that name ring a bell? Anderson? Peter's a uh, good guy. So I, uh, I hit balls with him quite a bit back then. So Dan, not in that era. Yeah, I played college hockey with Dan Dixon, Peter Dixon. So the two years goes by, and the coach who didn't give him the opportunity, he had left and gone to another college. And DK played nationals, and he beat someone who was on the team, and it was Peter Dixon, who was a very good Mm -hmm. tennis player. Peter Dixon, he he was this young guy hitting balls. He didn't know the politics of it, and Peter actually took tennis tech classes afterwards because he just knew. He goes, well, yeah. okay, all right. I mean, people didn't always take the program. We took some classes. But I, I remember that like it was yesterday. Is uh, DK's mother calls me up and, you know, she's in tears. And uh, because, you know, he became a much, much better tennis player, but he stayed there and he didn't have the opportunity to be on the team. You know, it's uh, there's many people that you know because you, you stayed in the Texas area. I know you came to Florida. Uh, I'm not. I'm in Virginia now. You, you, you went to Florida with me for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an experience that we could, could talk about on another podcast. We were running mm-hmm. together an academy in Boca, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, what could have been, what could have been. But anyway, I'm going to draw something up on that. Yeah, with uh, with DK, he, um, yeah. So he he left with the teaching skills, but there was many people. I think of say a Todd Longfellow. I mean, there's people who they they were denied the opportunity to be in the program, but then years later they were very heavily involved in Texas tennis. It was not Todd Longfellow, mm-hmm. Todd. Todd Taylor. Todd Taylor. Todd Taylor. That's where the fact checker. Mm-hmm. That's Barbosa, where the fact checker was stepped in. Well, Barbosa, he, he, he it's got to be about uh, you know, world-renowned tennis, not you know Texas tennis teachers. Yeah, but that's a great story. Yeah, Todd Taylor. Alex, why do you ask this young man, Dave Anderson? He's a tall, good-looking guy. He's mm-hmm. got wavy hair and um, former not, ha- former hand. I'm a former hand model. Former <laughs> hand model. Wow. Yeah. The uh, I had really I had exceptional hands. <laughs> they, they 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 were they filmed well. <laughs> Actually, the Lord works in mysterious ways because when I was losing my hair, Dave Anderson gave me more grief than anybody else. Oh. And I think he lost his hair before I did. I probably uh, did, but a lot of it's because of that time I spent <laughs> around you. I was so damn nervous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anderson, over here, I need to talk to you about your future. With mm-hmm. uh, You have one question for this young man, Alex? Any um, or a comment, a closer? Oh, putting me on the spot here. Closer. Smith, um, right a- the, right anything goes. No. No holds barred, Alex. Um, I mean, my one of the you mentioned a comment before regarding team sports, and it'd be a good idea for you know kids to practice or be part of a helmet sport. You know, I come from East Europe; we didn't have many helmet sports. We almost had no yeah. helmet sports. You know, we had we had soccer, big team sport; basketball, big team mm-hmm. sport; volleyball, huge team sport. You know, um, a lot of these sports they didn't require the students to be physical specimens in size. It was helpful for basketball and, and volleyball, but how, how would some of those sports, you know, relate to what you said regarding hockey, football, baseball, let's even say lacrosse, yeah. right? How could I, how yeah. could that 
relate? I I mean, when I think I, I use the word helmet sport, and I know Steve says the same thing. It's just kind of a phrase from back in my youth anyways. That, um, it wouldn't have to be a sport necessarily where a, a player's manning a helmet. It was just very common. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody I ran with in my youth that uh, that didn't play a helmet sport. I mean, everybody I knew played baseball, basketball, football, or hockey, everyone. And yeah. usually two of those sports. And, and so, uh, you know, the, I guess the, the, the team sport aspect, I mean, I, I like team sports because of being benched and being cut. And I know that's been discussed here many times. And I, so those other sports are fine, volleyball, mm-hmm. anything like that, that, but I, I just think there's, there's an unbelievable humility that comes out of being called to the bench and not having any control of your destiny in terms of that game you're in right there, you know, in, in getting back into the game. And, you know, tennis doesn't offer that. Tennis, uh, it does offer it, but it, it does it in a very subtle manner. And before you, re, you know, before you even realize that it offers that aspect of or it's too late with uh, for people. Women's soccer. I don't know if this is still true, but, um, it was the second sport for concussions. You know, when people had a football, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that they haven't come up with some, even for the men. I know those soccer players are pretty flamboyant and mm-hmm. they would maybe hide their, their interesting, uh, unique hairstyles. Um, it's interesting. Oh, yeah. Women's soccer is tough. My, my niece was a blue chip, uh, player out of Illinois. She was, uh, recruited on her way to Iowa state and uh, suffered a concussion her senior year that sidelined her and took her out of the sport. You know, it was one of many, but, uh, yeah, it's a tough sport. Barry, Barry, Barry Hent from Minnesota. He's a soccer player and he, he wrote a, a narrative on our program. I was asked to put that up again on Facebook. So I'll do that. But with, uh, we did it once and we were supposed to do it a second time, but the pandemic didn't happen. But I went to watch, uh, one of his five daughters plays soccer. It was high level soccer, mm-hmm. like the best players from St. Louis, the best players from Minneapolis. And the sport is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like, okay. And it was in the Tampa area. And it's okay. I've never been here. And there's 10 soccer fields and there's all these buses and all these con- concessions. Um, I can remember in a TK Gorman gym, that was a small private school. And people said, well, gee, why are, why are you teaching over there? And, and at that time, there was four clubs in this small city, Tyler, Texas, and I had students that were at all three. Mm-hmm. And then I, I also I worked at the college with TK Gorman at, at these four beat-up courts. But we had access to two gyms. Mm-hmm. One had a tartan surface, one had a wooden surface. And we used those in the wintertime. It was difficult because um, we picked kids up, and they went to regular school. We drove door-to-door. This is a small city, 70,000 people. And we used to practice – before they went to school, we would we'd get them in the gym. But in the summertime, the school shut down and the school was just empty. So we had a stadium stairs we could run, this beat up old track. And we may raise money to fix the, for the courts. But I remember having you, you would remember John Lafney Diaga and Casa Scapolitis. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we, we brought in some foreign players. And one of the reasons we brought in foreign players is the college coach 
uh, he wouldn't let his college players play with our juniors. I said, uh-huh. I said, no problem. I said, I'll bring in players that are better than your players. Uh-huh. So I remember I had, had three apartments and it was a, a war that we couldn't win, but, but we fought the war anyway. So, um, we played, um, and by, and by the time I left, we had girls that could beat girls on the team. We didn't have boys who could beat boys on the team, but we had boys that were going to a higher level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was the second year of a, of a second, the second five years of a 10 year program. So I said, okay, these guys from South Africa, they, they're terrible basketball players. <laughs> and maybe that's not true anymore. Maybe basketball in South Africa is more, more of a sport now. Um, what is it? Netball in South Africa that they play? I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know. I've been down there a few times, but so I don't I, think there's a lot of them in the NBA. Yeah. Okay. So I said, all right, we're going to play soccer. Mm-hmm. And then once the ball gets in the, what do they call it? The, you know, the rectangle right in front of the hoop. You know, the guy shooting baskets, they're at the foul line. Um, the paint. No. No? Anderson, you should know. Come on. Where's that jack guy? The rectangle in front of, you mean, are you talking about on the backboard? Your guy's shooting baskets. He's at the foul line. Yeah. And the rectangle right in front. It's it's squared out in a rectangle where the players line up in basketball. Yeah, where they wait for the rebound. Yeah, we, right? yeah. Yeah. I mean, inside of it's called the paint. Yeah. The paint. I mean, that's that's, it. Okay. I thought there was another term for it. But anyway, so once the ball went in that area, and Diaga and Scapoleas are both really tall guys, and and, uh, it's a long time ago. But what happened is it became rugby. It was supposed to be just soccer. And then once the ball went in that rectangular area, it was going to be it was going to be basketball. Then then you could pick it up and that's how you score. Sure. But once it went in that area, people just dove for it, and then it became a really good sport because there was contact. I mean, they were just diving and pulling and and uh, yanking the ball. Yeah, out it was. Of it was yeah. It, it was, um, but then to you know have junior tennis players to have a gym like that. I, I think in the states, especially junior players, they're not around athletes. You know, they just go to a tennis club and now, you know, well, there's a tennis club. Well, maybe there's a swimming pool. Maybe there's a golf course. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like like I remember going to Prague and it was like, whoa, these tennis kids, they're around the athletes, you know, at that time, the the Sparta club. But um, Mm -hmm. the 10 do's and don'ts. All right, David, sign off. What do you got for us? Thank you for being part of this. Thanks for another podcast. Yeah, it's always fun. I enjoy it and appreciate the opportunity to be on here. And Alex, nice uh, getting to to know you over the phone a little bit. Good luck with everything in uh, your journey. And um, yeah, to all the coaches out there, get out and teach. Thank you. To the parents. Thank you. Likewise. Stay strong. Enjoy listening to you and the stories you and Steve share. Yeah. Some of it even has to do with tennis. (laughs) 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 But uh, yeah. Well, uh, next by have you on the um, next podcast next time. I'm going to come on for a great acronym for your wife's name, Jenna. It ends in A, so I should be able to come up with something that uh, uh, a chirp towards Anderson. You know that locker room. Um, yeah, yeah, you'll you'll turn yeah. it, you'll turn it around. You'll turn it around. Yeah, you can think of that. I'll get that. I'll I'll send it in with the what could have been in uh, Boca. Well, story. We, what we really need to do is for our listeners is. Uh, we talked about having a reunion. We got to get Freddie Foreman on. You and I could be on mm-hmm. the line and we get Freddie on. And I've told people, yeah, we're going to have a reunion and uh, the feature is going to be uh Fred Foreman Anderson tennis match. And uh, the money's on for the man, the money's on uh, 
Foreman. Oh, Foreman. Yeah, that, that 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 may need to be edited more than the Costello one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah that, that might be. We might even have to put a disclaimer in front of that one. Yeah, you'd like yeah. Costello. You'd like Costello. He's a he's a character. It's always good to know characters. All right, Anderson, you're yeah. a character. Okay. Thanks for doing this. All, All right, the best thanks, to you guys. and we'll your team, you your family. Adios, amigos. Take care. Bye bye. Good night. All right. Everyone, thanks for listening with uh, Podcast 168. What did Andy Fitzell ever start? We keep doing this. I'm told that some people like these things. Alex, thanks for being part of it. And uh, Yvonne, the man behind the scenes, the man who does all the work. He's the brains of the operation. And we'll keep going. Podcast. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.